This episode is brought to you by 100 Bogart Street. Do you need a conference room for your next meeting? Learn more by visiting 100bogart.com. Hey, this is Hannah, HRN's program manager. It's HRN's 10th anniversary and now our summer fun drive. So show your support for independent, revolutionary, entertaining food radio by becoming a monthly recurring donor. HRN is powered by a passionate community of thoughtful eaters, and we need each and every one of you to show your support so that we can keep bringing you your favorite food podcasts. It takes a village, and every dollar donated, every listener tuning in is essential to our continued success. So set up a donation for $10 every month. You'll show us that you want to be a part of a bright future for HRN. And you'll get one of our brand new limited edition pizza pocket t-shirts. So snag your new favorite tea and show us some love, all for the price of about two fancy lattes each month. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate today. And thank you. Hey, gang, just a quick programming note. I am on vacation in Mexico this week. As you might be able to hear in my voice, I am suffering from incredible allergies, but despite that, I'm having an amazing time. I did want to let you know quickly that this episode is billed as a doubleheader featuring chefs David Shim of Coat Restaurant and also Lee Hansen and Riyad Nasser of Frenchette Restaurants, two of my favorite restaurants at the moment, two of the hottest restaurants in New York City and in the country at the moment. I had invited Jeff Gordner, a fellow writer, a colleague, and a neighbor of mine whose book, Hungry, just debuted yesterday to do the intro with me as I sometimes do. And Jeff and I got on a bit of a tear talking about issues related to chefs, creativity, the industry. It's very rare that I have a chance to speak with someone who I think could probably, as I like to categorize myself, in some ways be categorized as a chef writer as much as a food writer. So while I did edit the conversation a bit, this is essentially a triple header episode of the show because my conversation with Jeff runs for about 50 minutes. I think you're going to really enjoy it. I think it's very unusual for the show. And then we get it right into our interviews with David Shim, Lee Hansen, and Riyad Nasser. Just wanted to explain all that. And I hope you enjoy this episode. And I hope you're having a great summer. Thanks. I'm Massimo Bottura. Hi, this is Amanda Cohen. This is David Kinch. This is Mike Anthony. This is Huni Kim. This is Amanda Freitag. This is Richard Blaze. This is Paul Kahn. This is Curtis Stein. This is Stephen Harris. This is Missy Robbins. And you're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs on Heritage Radio. My wife kind of makes fun of me because she says, you still, you still work like you're playing sports in the way that like, I like to push myself till I'm like dead tired or like work those crazy hours so that I feel like I physically did something. Then you come home and, you know, take a shower or grab a beer, whatever it is to wind down makes you happy, you know, and she still calls me a lunatic for that. But, you know, she's seen me work in the kitchen and she constantly says, you kind of thrive for the the peak of service when it's like crazy. And I kind of tell her like the, the high that you get from like, when you're so backed up and you do everything in your power to push it all out. Yes. And 30 minutes, 40 minutes later, you just clear the clear the board, like the feeling that right. you get. It's like scoring a goal in soccer. You know, like I used to be the center defense, so yeah. I don't get a lot of chance to score goals. Yeah. But once you do, it's like this joy that you just can't, like you just like scream, yeah, and you just can't hold yourself. And I think you kind of get that off of working in the kitchen. That is Chef David Shim of Coat Restaurant 
in New York City. Uh, well, he and his longtime collaborator, they wrote this song, you know, for his first solo record. Yes. It's called Frenchette. Yeah. And uh, we, we pulled it up and listened to the lyrics. Yes. You know, so when I got back with the next day, you know, I yeah. said, I got the name. I got the eye rolls because every day I would come in and I'd go like, I got the name. Right. You know, and then these guys, both Lee and Josh would be yeah. like, oh, that name sucks so bad. Yeah. And uh, this time I said Frenchette and they, it was, they were quiet. So we knew, we knew uh, that was the, that was it. I think it was pretty much it, right? Yeah. How far out Don't from opening was that? Like the next day we opened. Not that bad, but <laughs> it's pretty it's close. close. You guys oh, were getting yeah, close. Yeah, yeah, it was close. And those are chefs Lee Hansen and Riyad Nasser of Frenchette Restaurant, also in New York City. Our guests on a special doubleheader episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Andrew Talks to Chefs. I'm your host, Andrew Friedman, and I am here once again with a mystery guest. Say hello, mystery guest. Hello. Do you describe yourself as a food writer? I just describe myself as a writer. That's good. Yeah. That makes sense. I happen to write about food these days. And chefs. And often chefs. Which I consider a as, distinction. As you do. But um, for many years, I wrote about music and, and film. Mm-hmm. And for many years, I just was a generalist writing about all sorts of curious characters. Yes. Such as uh, a mafia lawyer and body surfers in Orange County and a man who repaired broken sex dolls. You are a, you are a writer in a grand tradition. Yeah, I just float around. I skim around. I, I, I you know, I, I can't even guarantee that I'll be writing about food um, when this airs. I might change my mind. Well, <laughs> it's only eight days away. But. Yeah. Okay, so you are also the author, I want to get the subtitle right, of Hungry, Eating, Road Tripping, and Risking It All with the Greatest Chef in the World. And if That's that it. doesn't clear it up for people, then people are not paying attention. You are Jeff Gordonair. That's me. And you are, what exactly is your title at Esquire? Food and Drinks Editor. Food and Drinks Which Editor. Which is a, a bit of um, kind of messy nomenclature because I'm really just the food writer. I, I don't, you know, you know, I write about food and drinks. I don't really edit anything. I edit in the sense of sure. trying to introduce talented people yeah. to Kevin Sintumong, who is my editor. People like Stephen Satterfield, for instance, sure. who has contributed to our pages and is a brilliant person. Um, I do uh, serve in that role sometimes as kind of a middleman or, yeah. you know, liaison, but um, I don't actually edit anything. Yeah, well, that's sort of like a, that's <laughs> sort of like a, a, a little gift they give writers, right? So, like, I was an editor-at-large for Tennis Magazine for about eight years. I never edited anything. It was editor like, a, it's large. a little nod. Editor-at-large is nod. the best way of living. I was editor-at-large at Details for about a decade. Yeah. And again, I edited almost nothing. Um, but um, you, but at the same time, it means you're part of the mix in terms of coming up with ideas. And Before we introduce our guests, people will have heard from the opening teaser. We have David Shim from Coat. And Rap, we please. have Lee and Riyadh from Frenchette. This cool. is sort of a New, New York powerhouse of the moment episode. And those are places I want to eat. Yes. You know, I, well, actually, I sort of gave you your pick of the litter when I said, here's who I have, uh, who's who I have in the bank right now. And you especially, you were especially um, interested in talking about coat. I'm smitten with coat. Yeah. I had my uh, birthday party um, with, you know, friends, just like 12 of us, family members, essentially at coat um, in December. My birthday is on New Year's Eve. Yeah. So I never have a party on New Year's Eve. Yeah. It's impossible. Right. So I think the night before we went to coat. And my brother was visiting from Virginia, from Richmond, that area. And he was like, if this restaurant, 
existed in Richmond, it would be packed every night. This is incredible. Like yeah. the whole concept of it as a Korean steakhouse and the level of service, the level of quality of the beef and everything. You know, he was he was very impressed in the room. Well, it's also well. Let's talk about all this in a minute because I want to get to I want to talk okay. about your book. I'll talk about anything because your book, as Hard the show believe. airs, will have come out a day ago. How do you describe it? I mean, the book is obviously about Rene Redzepi of Noma. Um, you spent quite a bit of time with him and friends, I would guess, on the on the road. Yeah. Um, but how do you how do you describe it? What what was it going in, and what was sort of your um, as you saw it, your mission, and how did that change over the course of writing the book? That's a good question. That's a central question, and I think that sometimes when I describe the book, um, people get a puzzled look. They look a, a tad bewildered, and I tell them. It's really best if you just read it. Mm -hmm. um, and I find that when people start reading it, they, for whatever reasons, can't stop. And a lot of my friends have read it in a day or two. Um, it's really, I did. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, cool. Yeah. I mean, it moves fast. I didn't want it to be boring. I wanted it to be short and engrossing. It has no introduction. It just starts in the middle of the action and mm -hmm. it hopefully pulls you along in a sort of cinematic way. It's meant to be as pretentious as this sounds, because <laughs> that's my specialty, a meditation on change, a meditation mm. on risk and reinvention and creativity, and a study, a case study of a person who's at this sort of peak moment of creative drive. Mm -hmm. Okay, that would be Rene Redzepi, not myself. Um, no, but you talk about change. You, you yeah. do without me. I don't. I want to be careful of spoilers, but you do set it up early in the book that this this adventure you went on took place at a time of personal upheaval. Yeah, my own uh, marriage was uh, unraveling, and um, that is at the very moment I met Rene, and uh, he was at the pivot point of blowing up the original Noma, building a new one, planning a pop-up in Sydney, planning a pop-up in Tulum, Mexico, launching a whole wild food initiative in Denmark, raising three daughters, being a partner to Nadine, his wife. He had a lot going on, mm -hmm. and yet he seemed absolutely demonically compelled to move forward and to risk everything and, and change change it all up. Mm -hmm. He didn't want to get caught in a rut. I was almost by definition caught in a rut at that point in my life. So um, I, I guess I say this uh, cheekily, but it's not really a food book. I mean, that's an odd thing to say to your audience. There's a lot of food in it. A friend of mine calls it eat, pray, eat, love, eat, 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 eat. <laughs> like, right. And, and I mean that as a compliment because yeah. Elizabeth Gilbert's work is, is wonderful and has been yeah. a huge influence on me actually over the years. Um, there's a lot of eating in it, but it's not actually a book about food in a traditional sense. Yeah. It's more of a book about creativity. Um, and I think that Renee is... is um, emblematic of, of the avant-garde in cooking right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was just at Noma uh, a few days ago for the new Plant Kingdom menu, and they have a whole mold course. They have three courses of, essentially, you're eating mold. There was a mold taco, mold asparagus salad, which yeah. I loved. It yeah. reminded me of kind of a green goddess Californian thing, where I'm from, and then a mold pie. Yeah, um, There's a lot of insects, all these different fermented sauces, foraged greens and herbs that you've never heard of, let alone tried. Um, eating at Noma is unlike eating anywhere else. It's not the same as, you know, a luxury experience with foie gras and truffles and all that. It's, um, it's an expense, it's extravagant, but it's really more of something that's, that's almost engineered to 
alter your consciousness. Mm-hmm. I sound very Californian and hippie when I say that. No, but, but it, I think it's a little a like whole, a Grateful a Dead whole, show. But this has become a whole strain, obviously, of food right now. I mean, the, you know, to hear the whole, you know, when you say here the, comes a train. When you oh, we got to pause. No, this is good. Leave it on. I well, love this. This is where I live. I'll let it go. I love the sound. I hear this all night. So can people hear me? Probably. I, I didn't say this when I started, but you and I are neighbors. We live technically we live in, within the same town. We yeah, are in different right. villages. You're in Irvington, and I'm in Hastings on Hudson. These are in these are what are known as river towns. We're both people in love with the Hudson River. I guess I tried for a while to live away from the Hudson River, but I, it turns out that I'm so deeply infatuated with it that I couldn't part with the river. So <laughs> what I want to ask you is about the about uh, about Renee. Yeah. And about Noma is, you know, that we have an ongoing conversation that's happened on this show, right? Yeah. Whether or not cooking, uh, you know, by she- by a certain type of chef, I don't even want to say a certain level because I don't, I've, 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 in my own thinking, I've stopped thinking of it as different strata. I just think they're different types of chefs, right? But, but, yeah. But for people who operate in a in a in a creative, reflective mode. Um, Renee would be sort of the epitome of somebody like that. You know, I, you know, is cooking an art? Is cooking a craft? Right now, I know most times writers don't write flap copy. Although, if you're like me, sometimes you rewrite flap copy. Yeah. But the last word of the flap description of this book is artistry. Yeah, I love um, that. Actually, the, I didn't write that, but the people at Tim Dugan Books wrote that, and they said a chronicle of the moment when daredevil cooking became the most exciting and groundbreaking form of artistry. So do you I consider I didn't change it? that. I thought that was great. So do you consider it a, a, an art form? I think it can be. I think there's no reason why it shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. I think the people who want to say, oh, no, 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 food is just food. It's not art. You know, perhaps have not yet had access to this kind of experience. There's a level of intention. There's a level of narrative. There's a kind of narrative woven into what Noma does. Self-expression. Self-expression, autobiography, but also the the narrative about the region. Sure. Um, yeah, I think I think Noma is art. I, I I don't care if I get a little if I get some kicks for that, but um, I I um, have been seven times now and I'm hooked on it. Yeah. And I engage with it. As a kind of art installation at this point. You do? Yeah, man, I do. It's almost like going to a concert or going to a film. Like, Spike Lee has a new film. I want to go see it. Yeah. Do I love every single Spike Lee film? Not necessarily. Yeah. But, you know, Black Klansman comes out, I want to see it. Because sure. I think he's a great artist and he's an important artist in the world. So, there are certain people who... Cat power. I mean, there's just people who speak to us in important ways and I think Renee is one of those people yeah and I also think like you know uh, a, a couple people have teased me because I compare him to like David Bowie and mm-hmm. I'm obs- we are a David Bowie household we have mm-hmm. portraits of Bowie in our house including like a painted portrait that I bought in Copenhagen um, David Bowie as those of us know who are really into music constantly changed his identity mm. particularly in the 70s you know yeah. you had you had Ziggy Stardust and Aladdin Sane and the Thin White Duke. You had all these different characters. Then you had the whole Berlin phase. Um, Bob Dylan as well, constantly changing, you know, going electric. Then there's the sort of 
basement tapes phase with the band. There's the kind of country phase with Nashville Skyline, the sort of confessional poetry of blood on the tracks. Then the born again Christian phase. Mm -hmm. um, Don't leave David Johansson out of this conversation. I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> Here comes the train. <laughs> little, the train. little Buster Poindexter reference yeah. that I'm sure you didn't appreciate. But. The, tra the train arrived just when you asked about David <laughs> Johansson, conveniently. So. But my point is that Renee and the team at Noma are constantly evolving, yes. transforming in exactly the same way. I mean, they are blowing up the identity of the restaurant on a regular basis. Right now, if you go, you get the Plant Kingdom menu. Starting in the fall, it becomes a wild game menu. Right now, it's a vegetarian restaurant. In the fall, it's a, basically an all meat restaurant. Mm -hmm. And then in the winter and spring, it becomes a seafood restaurant. And all the courses from those menus don't repeat. So the Plant Kingdom menu now does not uh, copy the Plant Kingdom menu from last year. It's a completely new thing. This is why I perhaps facilely compare Noma to the Grateful Dead. Because when you went to see the Grateful Dead at their peak, uh, every single night was different. You never knew what songs they were going to trot out. They might start it with an hour of Space Jams or some crazy thing, and then it would lead into Scarlet Begonias. You just never knew. So people kept going to the Dead shows because of that element of surprise mm -hmm. and that element of intoxication that comes with surprise. There's many, many bands that you can go see, and they play the same show night after night. There are many, many, many restaurants that trot out the same hits night after night and the same goddamn burrata and the same predictable menu items, which, by the way, are delicious. There's nothing wrong with them. It's just that they don't necessarily suggest forward progression. And they don't turn you... You personally are not as turned on by that as you are by somebody in the Red Zeppi mold. I love comfort. Fine. You know, yeah. like I love the Missy Robbins restaurants, which are innovative in, in her way, but also bring comfort yes. to the table and, and are unbelievably satisfying. Yeah. I mean, my favorite restaurant is Via Carota, which for me is all about comfort. But I will tell you that when I'm looking around for new restaurants for Esquire's annual list, you know, Adamix in Manhattan blew my mind. Yeah. Like, I thought JP and Elliot Park are the, are the next wave of artistry in American food. Yes. You know, I, I, I ate at Adamix, and I told a lot of people this, and, and uh, there's a lot of, you know, in our realm, there's a lot of people who are just weary of tasting menus. They're like, oh, man, I can't. I'm like, I understand, you know. <laughs> I've had times where I simply don't want to endure one. But Adamix is a different thing. First of all, it's fast and furious. It's very quick. Every bite is um, is an illumination. Yeah. So I think JP, you know, is going to be up there with Dominique Crenn and mm -hmm. Eric Repair mm -hmm. as one of the great chefs in America. So mm -hmm. that is exciting to me. Yeah, it's just, it was exciting to me in music. You know, when I went to see Sonic Youth when I was a kid and they're playing all these crazy tunings, you know, and, and crazy rhythms, weird uh, start-stop rhythms and kind of atonal modes, and I was like, what the hell's happening? It's beautiful. What is this? I hate it. I love it. It's beautiful. What's mm -hmm. happening? I like that feeling, mm -hmm. right? So I'm looking for that with restaurants, too. Yeah. So you, uh, thanks for all that. You uh, you have now alluded to it multiple times before I really got to it. First of all, uh, I, I didn't realize what a movie buff you are, clearly. Oh, you, yeah. You use movies and you're writing it shorthand. I do the same thing. I had to take a lot out. I overdid it. There were, there were a lot of movie references. Like, I, I started seeing that there would be, like, two on a page. So <laughs> when, I, when I did revisions, yeah. I had I'd actually, believe it or not, took out a lot of movie references and, and music references because it was becoming... You know, look, I spent a decade writing at Entertainment Weekly. Yeah. 
it did a number on my brain. Yeah. Like, I, I am a pop culture junkie. And, and that, all of us at Entertainment Weekly in the 90s were pop culture misfits and, who are obsessed in different ways. And, and you know, that's, I'm never going to shake that. No, but also, if you, I mean, to me, the thing about a movies is if you, if you really do deeply feel them, as clearly you do, as I yeah. do, I used to be in the movie business. Oh, you know, yeah, cool. You, you, uh, you know, there are moments that happen in life. Tell me if I'm mis- not describing you correctly, but, you know, where you just almost feel like you are that person in that movie, like you're, or maybe you are in that landscape. And so it's the easiest way to convey. It's just almost like a really amazing, you know, four-dimensional adjective. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and, 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 you know, but but go I ahead. Mean, part, well, part but, of it for me is that I really didn't want this to be a book whose audience is limited to those of us deep, deep in the food world. Right. I wanted it to find a bigger audience. I'm yeah. sure you did with your book too. So, the, so pop culture references help create bridges to that audience. Mm, they help bridge the gap, yeah. you know, because a lot of people are never going to eat at Noma. They don't know what I'm talking about. I don't yeah. blame them. I mean, yes. it's a weird. They're like insects, you know. Like right. what, he's like he. What is he? What is this food? You know. So yeah. I was trying to describe it in uh, with metaphors that perhaps they can relate to more readily. Yeah. And pop culture serves that purpose. You know. Um, you know, I I was more than a music fan. I mean, I was you know. I was one of those kids from music saved my life. You know, yeah. like music formed my identity. Music yeah. got me you know, shucked me out of the shell of a very conservative environment in which I grew up. So it's it was more than just something on my radio to yeah, me. It, sure. it, it you know, it's true for so it many deep, true for it my had daughter. Real meaning for you. Yeah, it's true Almost for my, religious meaning for you. Abs- like actually, yeah. Yes. And, yeah. and you know, my my daughter is a songwriter actually and I can see that her passion for music is is of this of a similar vein, you know. And so um but at a certain point in my life it started to wane. My passion for music faded, and I was depressed, and I was not finding solace or intoxication, even in songs that had meant so much to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I couldn't explain why that was happening, but I, w- I would play this and that, and it was just kind of noise in the background instead of... Um, Instead of something sacramental, right? And then at the around the same time, I started finding uh, a similar mode of uh, exhilaration in food. Mm, okay, you know? I think that's one reason a lot of music writers, a lot of food writers of my vintage, <laughs> are former music writers. Yes, you know because I, I think there's some of Adam Sachs is like this. There's some of us who are Brett Martin. I'm kind of interested in pleasure. I'm interested in delight. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in those cultural touch points at which we can access transformation. Mm-hmm. And after a while, for me, that was happening in restaurants more than it was happening at concerts. Or even in film, partly just because when my children, when my daughter was born 17 years ago, almost to the day now, and... You know, I just stopped going to movies. It was just became something has to That's drop the thing out. That goes. Yeah, because you can, you can still listen to music yeah. all the time. But yeah, and, and in fact, we did all the all the time at the house. I think it's one reason she loves music so much. But I just couldn't make it out to theaters for films. And unlike your mo- the movie references you make, which are very much sort of in passing, right? In the yeah, book. and, there, and the movies everyone knows, like yes. Lawrence of Arabia or but, The Godfather. And but stuff. when you 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 know, I asked this art craft question before you. Um, 
and it's interesting to hear you describe it in such personal terms, but your music comparisons are much more extended. They, yeah. they go on for some, in at least one case, for a couple of pages. Part of the weird uh, curveball of the book is that I have a whole passage arguing that the cliche of chefs as rock stars has outworn its welcome. Yeah. And that's not news to anyone in our world, but I'm sick of it. And so I'm trying to use music metaphors as a bridge to the reader without categorizing Rene Redzepi as a rock star. Because as I say in the book, I don't think he is. I don't think he has anything to do with rock stars. He's he's much more received, perceived, treated like written about in your book as an artist. Yeah, and and he's he's sort of more like the kind of um, Silicon Valley entrepreneurs in terms of trying to foster, uh, trying to disrupt and create and destroy and, um, you know, build something from scratch. That's a new way of looking at the world. So um, he's not uh, prone to self-sabotage. He barely drinks. He's a family man. Yep. He deeply, deeply connected to his family and I think sees Noma as an extended family. He has deep friendships. He's not somebody I've ever seen in a debauched state. He doesn't leer. He's not that kind of person, you know. So um, I I think at a certain point I say if we have to, if we have to stretch this, he's a little bit like David Byrne from Talking Heads. Right. Well, so can you you want to spoil this surprise? I I actually missed this. Yeah, so all the sections of the book are actually named after Talking Heads songs. Mm -hmm. No one seems to have noticed or cared about that. I somehow missed it. Well, I think it's partly because the first section is called Pulled Up, and that's an obscure Talking Heads song yeah. from their first album. Okay. It's the last song in the first album. If you listen to the lyrics of Pulled Up, it actually totally is in sync with the, the theme of the book because it's about someone sort of being rescued by someone else. Yes. Uh, then there's Burning Down the House, Houses in Motion, when they go into the Mexico pop-up phase, and, of course, this must be the place when the new Noma is built yeah. and we visit it. Um, those are more obvious. Um, but I was actually trying to draw kind of hopefully nuanced connection between David Byrne and Rene Redzepi there because um, I think of David Byrne as more an artist and also someone who built uh, this huge band like when we got to the Remain in Light phase and the, the film stopped making sense you know this this big beautiful multicultural band that was exploring sound exploring textures exploring culture um in a, in a very intentional, soulful way. Well, he was I, also I, sort of a reluctant rock star. Yeah. He was, you hear these stories about when they would first play at CBGB's that he was almost, almost, almost painful, it was almost painful <laughs> to watch him perform. Apparently he was incredibly yeah. awkward and, yeah. you know, it was sort of a means to an end. He had to get over it to accomplish where he, what he wanted to be doing. Well, but he wasn't think- someone who seemed to crave that. When you think of David Byrne, you don't think of him partying. You don't think of him, like... No. debauch. You think of David Byrne reading a book and riding a bike, yeah. you know, and, and, and that's similar to Rene, actually. Yeah. And actually, Rene has never driven a car. Did you know that? No. Did He's I? Did I? Never. Is that mentioned in the book? No, I forgot. <laughs> Dude. I'm being honest with you. I forgot <laughs> I, I to put it in the book. I'm, yeah. gonna, I'm just being honest. Like, I yeah. had so much going on with the kids and everything. Yeah. There's certain little details I yeah. forgot to include, yeah. and I think I thought I did, and then I... What's the, the reason for that? Well, in Copenhagen, you don't have to. You just ride bikes everywhere. Yeah. You walk everywhere. He lives really close to the restaurant and stuff. And um, 
I guess it just wasn't how he. I mean, a lot of people in Denmark don't drive cars. Actually. Or have they don't have? Does he? But they don't. They don't have licenses. They just don't. No, they don't learn how to do it. His mind. Like New Yorkers. There's a lot of New Yorkers. Yeah, exactly. People who were born, the rare people that were actually born in Manhattan, raised in Manhattan. A lot of them don't know how to drive. For a Los Angeles boy like myself, yes. this is bizarre. I grew up in South Florida. Same thing. <laughs> like yeah, I drove couldn't everywhere. Wait, couldn't wait. Yeah, I drove when I was twelve. Yeah. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but uh, so he. Um, you know, he's he's much more um, of an intellectual. Yeah. Um, not in, in, in necessarily some geek way, but, I mean, he's interested in culture and philosophy and history. And um, it can actually be somewhat exhausting uh, when you're on the road with Rene because he's he's always talking and always analyzing things, talking about history and science. Yeah. And uh, that enriched the book. It tired me out sometimes. Another ph philosophical question, right? Not something that's in the book, but I'd love your take on this. And it is interesting. You mentioned, uh, when you talk about comfort, you mentioned two women. You mentioned Jody Williams. Yeah. You mentioned Missy Robbins. And this isn't, I'm not judging one side or the other. Y'all can but judge. I, I, no, no, no. But I do find <laughs> it to be an interesting observation that I think holds up most of the time. If anyone could correct me on this, it would be you. So I'm interested to know whether you agree with the observation or if you're going to give me a, a counterexample. I think the type of chef you describe in this Dominique book... Dominique Crenn. That's, that's the, the counter. One. I know. That's the I know. one. Or Elena but, Regan in Chicago. That's interesting. But um, yeah. the, the no, question go ahead. is, I know well, this, this, is. Sort of, <laughs> this sort of artistic view of, the, of, the, of, what, of what they do, this sort of tortured artist kind of... You know, you do see Renee sort of, you know, having these moments... You know, the whole thing about the mole. I mean, he's yeah. talking about mole. Like, well, i got to make yeah. a mole. You know? Yeah, he's and, obsessed. Yeah, but it's like, dude, is that hard to make a... You know, to make a version of mole? Like... <laughs> But there is, you know, uh, you know, there is, you know, years ago in that controversial piece, Alan Richmond coined that term egotarian cuisine. Oh, he did? I didn't even know that. Yeah, it That's was good. about guys in this mold. And, it was, he, oh. and in that piece, he said I used that most too. of the people who do this, uh, who operate in this vein, are men. Yeah. And, that there, it, and he said it was the first movement in history, culinary movement, that was more about the creator than the diner, right? Now, huh. I don't take it that far. But I do think the it's pretty interesting. I do think that the motivations are very different for someone like Renee than for almost any woman I could think of. You, you know, we could rattle off probably two dozen guys who kind of function like this now. It'd be hard to name more than the two women you named who kind of fit in that same pathway. You know, and I'm not saying one's better than the other, but I do think it's a fascinating sort of. It says something I think about human beings. I'd love I'll, your reaction I'll, to that, and don't spare my feelings. I will answer it this way. The world's 50 best list comes out every year. Yep. And when it's extended, recently it was 120 restaurants uh, that are deemed the best restaurants in the world by this mysterious organization. Um, the whole ideology behind such lists is fraught and silly. I say this as someone who puts together a list, <laughs> a list. at, at right. Esquire. Um, but most of the chefs on that world's 50 best list and the extended one are men. And that's a big problem that they need to fix. Mm -hmm. And I can help them fix it. I can help them fix it. What's the Gordonier? Stop only including tasting menus. That's mm. not the only way to eat. Mm. Okay. Why is Via Corona not on that list? Explain that to me. Why Why is Prune not on that list? Why is um, The Gray in Savannah, Georgia, yeah, Mashama Bailey? Okay, listen. She was on the show three months ago? Honestly, right, yeah. The Gray. Yeah. 
the holistic thing, not just the food, everything. Yeah. The hospitality, the room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Gray is one of the best restaurants I've ever been to in my life and one of the most important restaurants in America. Why is that not on the list? Because it doesn't have a tasting menu? Go to the Gray and consider it equally to all these places that have these fancy international Michelin star tasting menus because that's not the only way to eat. So if they want to include more women, they want to branch out and have more diversity, it's not difficult. It, it, it involves changing the rubric of what you consider a great restaurant, which is actually the restaurants most of us want to eat at anyway. You know, we want to eat at Via Corota. We, why is Missy Robbins not on these world's 50 best lists? She's one of the best chefs in the world. I would say it's because of this sort of... Um, I think the I think the entire sort of lens that we look at this look at all of this through is a very and I'm not just saying this because it's uh, you know very trendy to talk like this right now yeah but I do think it is very much kind of it's it's a lens that was kind of forged by um, you know this notion of male chefs this notion you know Nouvelle Cuisine what was that about it was about breaking away from the classic Escoffier dishes and doing yeah. more personality food what do women like Missy and, and, yeah, well, and just... Jody and, and Rita what do they large a lot of these women do they largely um, operate in a very traditional mold they're very happy to... yes and no but just blow it up Blow yes, up the, no, blow I'm trying to up, explain you know, like, where it comes yeah, from. Yeah, I'm no, not defending no, it. No, yeah. I, I, I know you are. But I'm does just, that make I, sense as yeah, a it theory? Does. I just think that yeah. they, need to, they, need, they need to blow it up. Yes. They just simply need to rethink what a restaurant is and actually go back to the roots of what a restaurant is, and then their list will be better and will be more diverse. It's actually very easy, and it'll be more interesting when the list comes out if they actually do that, which, by the way, I don't think they will. But I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, I have the answer. I say that. I say that. Uh, you know, but, with 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 ironic arrogance. But you know, you and I, as they, say, I'll give you a movie reference. As they say in Godfather Part Two, you and I are part of the same hypocrisy, Senator. Which is we oh, we do that. trade on this a little bit, right? Like you have in this book, Renee, yeah. on the cover, greatest chef in the world. Oh well, yeah. What is that based on? That's yeah. kind of based on the fifty. I mean, I'm very that, grateful for these <laughs> trains. <laughs> No, but do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. No, no. no I, but that I, is a shorthand I, I, I use, I and I'm sure you I've made a deal use. with Metro North that they will send trains <laughs> at exactly the moment when you ask an awkward question. No, but, but, no. but I apply that to myself Yeah, you're also. right. I know. Oh, I got an interview with so-and-so. Who's that? Oh, you know, they're like number three. Like, I had Massimo Bottura on the show. Yeah. Early on. It was a big get, like my 10th show. Totally, right? yeah. And people who, friends of mine, who maybe don't follow this, but I was all excited, and we had a great time. Who's that? Oh, you know, he was number one. You know, yeah. re, you know that we use that. I know. I'm sure it's you use it with people. It is shorthand. It's shorthand. It's a I use- know, and it's persuasive. And it, you know, Renee himself told Adam Platt in the in this piece that's you know up at Grub Street. You know that anybody who pretends they don't care about the 50 best list is lying. They're full of shit. Of course we care. That's what he said. You know, and it's because there's a huge impact on the sheer economics of a restaurant. You yeah. send customers your way. Right. That's exactly why it should be more and, diverse. And and, <laughs> and for the for the mostly guys who are on it who who game it out as best they can, yeah. it is competitive. That is another, I think, largely male trait that a lot of women don't apply to what they do. I'm Could not be. judging one know. way or the other. I think yeah. some people do look at it as an interesting game. Okay. No you, no no man, it's all good. I you have I enjoy to make this. a train you have a train to make. I do. Um, okay. Don't you? I think I don't remember. Okay. No, because we have to get to our guests. Okay. Let me ask you one more question about the book. Okay. Um, I'm enjoying this. I want to say... (laughs) It's so lively. I want to say one more... Well, it's... Do you have this? There's not that many people I feel like I can have these conversations with, really. 
who write about it are in it, know the people, yeah. spend time with these yeah. people. Um, to me, all awards should be on the model. Of, what does the Beard call, Beard Awards call that thing where they get like, you know, like six or eight or whatever it is, like the America's Classics or whatever? Yeah, America's Classics. And there was the Who's I love who, those restaurants. And there's the Who's Who, which is kind of like their little Hall of Fame within yeah, the Beard Awards. Yeah, they got rid of that, I think. Yeah, but that, to me, that's what all these awards should be. I don't think there should be a oh. number one. Like, I think there could be a 50 best, and it's just the class of 2019. Oh, that's interesting. Because how do you compare something like Noma to the Gray? Let's say those are your two finalists. How do you pick who gets number oh, one and who gets number two? Oh, I don't think that's difficult. See, I, I, like, if we were to use the, the framework of music, yeah. how do you compare music from one genre with music from another genre? Well, we do it all the time. Right. How do you compare an indie film that wins an acting prize at Sundance with a big blockbuster superhero movie from Hollywood? Well, we do it all the yeah. time. I've, at I've, Entertainment Weekly, we would put together lists all the time that would have you know, all different genres mixed together. That's beautiful. I enjoy that. I don't think... I, 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 here's how I judge it. It's just actually very core. It's like if someone said to me, do you want to eat at the Gray tonight? I'd get on a plane and go. Mm-hmm. Someone said to me, you want to eat at Noma tonight? I get on a plane and go. La Bernadette, I'm on a train. I'm going right now. Other restaurants, yeah. uh, give me a six months advance notice <laughs> and I'll see if I can find time in my schedule. So if I have that compulsion yes. to go, like Bar Cren, Dominique Cren's yeah. wine bar in San Francisco, I love so much that I think I'll probably always try to drop in there. When I'm in the Bay Area, I love what she does. I can't afford it. It's it's not good for my credit rating right. that I keep going there. But, like, right. I just, it's a feeling, yes. right? It's I the same that. as with music that you want to play the album over and over, you know? Um, so, I don't see any problem with including completely different types of restaurants. I, I think that's um, actually more honest. Yeah, I, to me, it's just about whether we're having to give one, you know, having to ha- having to order them. Also, you know, that's should, where I don't. That's what I don't think oh, is necessary. Oh yeah, the order is crazy. I don't but think like, there needs to be a number one. Well, they, you know, I know this from Esquire that people really respond to the numbers of and the list. They do. It creates a lot more energy of and traffic. They do. I'm looking for restaurants that are more than just the food too. I hear you. But let me ask you a question, just to make my case. Sure. <laughs> You, we were talking, can I say this? We were talking about anything. awards before the it, before we started recording. Oh, yeah. You've not been nominated, mean, meaning this, 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 I, I've never this been... has all been, for, for people, I, I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. I don't want to seem critical. There is now this, um, you know, what it, what it traditionally is meant to be nominated for a Beard Award in any categories, you're in the final five, right? You're a finalist. Yeah. Because of social media, because of how the Beard Foundation now promotes these things, if you make the list of 20 semi-finalists on the restaurant side, you declare everyone declares themselves nominated. Oh, yeah, that's Not a right. true nomination. I'm not trying to be offensive to anybody, but that's classically, that's not actually the nomination. It's the nice. nomination is, the, is yeah. the short list. Okay, It's nice to be thought of. Though. Now, we were talking that somehow, astonishingly, you have not been nominated for a Beard Award. <clears throat> now... It turns out to be true. No, I have have never been nominated for James. Now, let's say instead of. I think a lot of people assume I have. They think think I'm like. I did until someone else told me that a few weeks ago. They think I'm like this establishment guy who probably has seven of them. I've never been nominated at all. But I mean, that's fine. Alfred Alfred Hitchcock never won an Oscar. Oh, really? Nope. So here's my point. You know, in the entirety of the 70s, um, David Bowie. Yeah. 
never was nominated for a Grammy. Yeah. Well, I once heard. I'm not comparing myself to David Bowie, or maybe I am. But Ringo Starr. <laughs> that would be completely years absurd. And and uh, but uh, I just you know sometimes you think. All right, okay. The, the, in terms of, you know, that's sometimes the best framework to think about awards in general is that they're lovely. They go to people who deserve them for all sorts of reasons. Yeah. And, and great writing, great uh, creativity but, in the kitchen being, being some of those reasons. Um, but they're also uh, kind of abstract and ephemeral and random and, like, and arbitrary. And, like, you know, we shouldn't overthink world's 50 best list we, sh- we shouldn't overthink some of these lists and awards because ultimately the experience of contact human contact in a restaurant is what's important that's yeah, no, really what but matters here's what i want to say about so, a, like but here's what i was going to say about my view of what awards should be right like let's say because you don't know you might you might have been like the sixth right Oh, I don't know. I have no idea. No, I've never so, even. I've, ne- I've nothing so to do with if, the organization. So what if so. each? What if one year they were like these are the these are just the ten best pieces of writing this year, and you were in that group? That'd be nice, right? Like, why does there have to be like the one? Per- How do you compare these pieces? That's all I mean. Well, and I think it's the same with restaurants. That's all I mean. You know, I recently taught a class in food writing at Drexel University. And I included a lot of pieces by writers I admire. Helen Rosner, Soleil Ho, Tejo from New York Times, mm-hmm. Pete Wells, um, Josh Ozersky, may he rest in peace. Um, and um, some of these pieces had been nominated for James Beard Awards or had won them. And I uh, became aware of the pieces in some cases because of that, because I went back in the archives mm-hmm. and sought out, you know, I was looking for a an array of different voices and perspectives. And um, honestly, some of these pieces were incredible. They were just so beautiful. And I thought, oh, okay, well, they're better than mine. <laughs> I really did. I'm being honest. I was like, oh, golly, I didn't, uh, I was not, like, okay, I don't even know if it won a prize, but Helen Rosner's piece on the Olive Garden yeah. is an epic. Yeah. It's actually a classic. Yeah. So I, I had read that before and loved it, but I reacquainted myself yes. to teach it to these students. And um, let me tell you, also the students flipped out about it. They they also love Jay Gold. They like love Jonathan Gold. The thing about great writing, here comes a train. We'll wait. Oh, now you're gonna wait. It's all right. You're talking. You wait. I'm so used to this sound. The thing about great writing, yeah, great music, great cooking, is that. All the when it when there's that excellence, it has a way of transcending um, its category. Its category yeah, and totally just agree. speaking to people. Totally I think Jonathan agree. Gold had that. Like almost everyone I know, just when they finally make contact with his writing, love it so much. It's full of life. It's full. Of, it's, it's full oxygen of oxygen and yeah. So okay, seriously though, Jeff, I want to make sure. Is your train at eleven fifteen? Because it can be. What time is it now? It's ten fifty nine. We have to introduce oh, our two fine. guests. It's, I just go across. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So two questions. Well, one last question about the book. I have found when I either collaborate with somebody or if I spend a, an extraordinary amount of time with somebody in order to write about them, when it's somebody as sort of as big a personality, as, yeah. as big a force as somebody like Rene Rizzepi, right, that, that something about me will change. Even oh, as yeah. a full-grown 52-year-old adult, yeah. something will rub off. I may adopt some a mannerism of theirs. Um, I yeah. may adopt some kind of problem solve. I may I'll learn something from them. Did it, did that happen with you with him? And if so, yeah. if it's not too personal, what was it? Well, I I now eat sprigs that I pick up <laughs> off the sidewalk. Are you I, being serious? No. Okay. 
I was waiting no, for you I, to... I forage. I'm actually foraging right now. I'm looking at all the plants here in, the, in, in this parking lot. I was wondering lot. why you're eating the bubble gum off the bottom of this yeah. picnic table. It's quite good. Actually, it's fermented. The bubble gum ferments at the under, underside of the table. People don't know that, and it gets, it gets this little funky undercurrent. Yeah. Um, I think he uh, just he kicked me out of a rut. Mm-hmm. Other factors did too. I mean, friends sure. and stuff. I mean, but he played a role in that. I used to just walk on the aqueduct. Trail yeah, you here talk about this in the for book for hours at yeah. a time, just kind of gnawing on my, uh, you know, my path and my yeah. guilt and things. And and um, that is not productive. It is productive to move forward. It is productive to be. Um, so he didn't do this with a locker room talk or any. He did this locker by room osmo- talk. No, no, he did this he's by not as- that kind of guy. No, I meant like a, yeah. a, a halftime, a halftime pep no, talk. No, he did this be- by osmosis. It was by yeah. being in his presence. It's ambient. It's yes, like being. That's around, what I meant. He's, he's being around this kind of ambient energy that's all about forward thinking. Now, that's by the way, that's his own. That's his problem. I mean, he probably needs to learn to live in the now more. Yeah, you know, and I needed to get to stop living in the past. Um, Interesting. Yeah, which is my problem. Yes. Like I get, I get kind of caught in feedback loops of the past somehow. Mm-hmm. And um, well, it's kind of a professional. Uh, what's the term? Occupational hazard. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> it is kind of what you do when you know get paid to do when you sit down and yeah, you kind turn of that like, switch on. It's yeah, hard to turn of, that switch off sometimes. You create these synaptic ruts almost of thinking about something over and over and creating this groove in the floor of like almost like you've moved the chair back and forth and it creates this groove in the floor. That's my problem. Well, so, did you? There's this great line. I forget. It's an Updike story. I don't think it's a novel. But the first line is something like, when I was 13 years old, I was something and funny looking and went around thinking of myself in the third person. <laughs> That's funny. It's pretty funny. I like that, you know, to be to be, to be be cheesy. I like that Bob Dylan line, you know, I was so much older than I'm younger than that now. Right. Like, uh, uh, I guess maybe that was a bit of my takeaway from hanging out with Renee Redzepi right. and stuff is I, I kind of reconnected with some of that youthful energy. Cool. Thank you for that. All right. The yeah. book is, we're going to switch gears, so I want to say this now because then we're going to lead into the intro of uh, our chefs. The book is Hungry, Eating, Road Tripping, and Risking It All with the Greatest Chef in the World by Jeff Gordoner. Jeff, thank you very much. And Thanks, I hope Andrew. they won't be offended by this. When you said there was no introduction, something hit me. You know, in the book, there is no introduction. You kind yeah. of start off um, I hate in the middle of it. But, you know, I, I hope it's not, a, it's not, a, it's not, a, it's 200 ish pages, yeah. a little more than that. But I would say that this is very much like sort of a a a, a, um, a massive Jeff Gornier article in, in many ways. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. not offensive to you, is it? Because I think no. if people enjoy your pieces for Esquire, if they enjoy the cadence of those pieces, if they enjoy the the breadth of those pieces and the way they kind of move around in emotion from from sort of what's in front of you to extract to the extrapolation of larger themes. I think they'll find a lot of the same thing in this book. Well, you know, um, a lot of the books that people seem to be talking about this summer, um, Lauren Meckling's novel, Taffy Brodesser-Ackner's novel, Mm -hmm. Elizabeth Gilbert's novel, all of those women are masterful uh, magazine writers. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to think about those of us who've come through magazines. Magazines are in crisis to some degree. But those of us who've trained uh, in writing for magazines for 20, 30 years... Um, I mean, Taffy's a goddess. She's a, she's sure. really a miraculous writer uh, and a friend. Um, I, I, you know, we learn how to entertain. Yeah. 
When you write for magazines, you have to entertain the readers. You can't bore them. You cannot commit the sin of boredom. You I mean, can't you just bore them. Out of my you mouth. have yes. to make it fun. Yeah. It and has to be informative them. and yeah. educational, but it also you have to grab them real quick. And we all learned that from Tom Wolfe and people like that. And yeah. so, yeah, I wanted it to feel like that. Cool. Okay. Thanks, man. Thank you. Now we're going to shift gears. Okay. And we're going to introduce uh, David Shim, the executive chef of Coat. Coat is... It doesn't do it justice. It's billed as a Korean steakhouse. Yeah. It's, it's what do, I would describe it as, and it's so funny you like it so much. I love it. My wife especially loves it. Cool. Um, it's, it's, there's a bar downstairs now called Undercoat. Yeah. <laughs> um, it has these incredible, it feels both, I think, very of the moment and sceny and also very traditional. You know, it evokes places that I've never been to, but, you know, of, yeah. of like the 60s places with names like the Polynesian Room. Oh, you know, cool. the last yeah. time I went there, I had a Mai Tai. Yeah. And yeah. I hadn't had a Mai Tai probably in 25 years. But I'm, a, I, I'm, a big advocate. I'm a big advocate of fun. Fun. Well, have you know, do you know their little equation that they have? It's, a it's coat? Their in, yeah, their internal language. David mentions it in the interview. It's, it's drinks plus fire plus meat equals fun. Oh, right. Yeah, that's like their little inter- internal... Their mission statement. Mission statement. And they sorts. live up to it. That's very interesting because yeah. it's a restaurant. what do you love about it? That it's, that it's got um, luxury without pomposity. Mm. That it's stripped down to the joy of cooking and eating and drinking. And it's it has that sense of theater and celebration. I don't really like although I grew up in the church, maybe it's because I grew up in the church, I don't like churchy restaurants. Mm-hmm. You know, Noma is sometimes described as a sanctuary or something, but actually it's quite casual and laid back, and Renee just wears, like, sandals and a T-shirt, and you kind of feel like you're in some commune, and you can just hang out in the lounge when you're done eating, chill with everyone. And um, there's all different modes of fun and looseness, but yeah. I guess I'm drawn to that. I mean, I think La Bernadette is really fun and sexy. It's yeah. not, like like, fussy, you know? Fussiness of a certain sort is just where I get off the boat. Yeah, it's a like, turn off. I, I don't know. It, it just so um, I think that every time I've walked into Coat, you get this kind of tingle of energy. Like yeah. you just feel like stuff is happening. Um, there's all the, you know. Another restaurant I really love is King. You yeah, know? and I mean everyone loves King right now. It's it's just become one of the signature downtown Manhattan restaurants. Uh, and it's just such a beautiful, calm place to have lunch, for instance. Uh, food is exquisite. I love it for lunch. That's it's great for lunch. I also love the menu short. Yeah, I actually, and it changes daily. I love short menus. Yeah. Like one of the best things about Isodi also is like, there are times when I've gone in there, there seem to be eight things on the menu total. You know, <laughs> I actually don't like choice. Like, yeah. I, I noticed when I'm doing the Esquire Best New Restaurants list that what I'm drawn to are restaurants that pick a lane. Yeah. They have a vision and they stick to it. Yeah. Like the Missy Robbins restaurant, Missy in particular, recent one. I mean, it's just like, okay, what do people love about us? They love the vegetables and they love the pastas and they love the gelato. Let's just serve that. What you know? they love about them and most Italian restaurants, most people I know when they go to an Italian restaurant, their they're, they're scanning of a menu kind of ends after preemie. They yeah. don't they don't order the proteins. I mean, they you do because you might. have to, but you almost don't want it. But you don't so have like, to. like strip it down to what, yeah. you know. What do you specialize in yeah. here? Yeah. You know, and so coat is a good example of that clear clarity of vision. Like, okay, we're going to serve great steak, kind of luxury items. I mean, there's caviar if you want it. You mm-hmm. know, great martinis, things mm-hmm. like that. But um, 
but it doesn't feel old school at all. It doesn't feel like some nod to nostalgia. It, like they're not trying to replicate some Mad Men thing. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm grateful for that. All right. Well, David Shim is the quiet chef at the center of Coat. Simon Kim is the proprietor. He's much, yeah. when you see he's the, the place, showman. he's the showman. The place seems very outwardly reflective of him. But then on the plate, the craft, the attention to detail, the, the careful sourcing, it, that's that's David Shim, who I was stunned to learn because I I do go and look up other people's people's earlier podcast interviews. This was the first time he'd ever sat down and done a podcast interview. He really? does not crave the limelight. Holy cow. No, he's a very quiet dude, uh, but he was very open, and we had a great time. Cool. And with that, here is my interview with Chef David Shim of Coat Restaurant. Well, there's my tray. Oh shoot! <laughs> no, it's okay. Well, I'll get the one after. Was it eleven fifteen now? You said eleven fifteen. Yeah, yeah I'll get eleven ten. If I get the eleven forty, I'm fine still because okay. I'll well. be in town. I just need to be in it by one. Okay. For for lunch. Okay. You know how important lunch is. It's the main meal. Despite <laughs> it what really they teach is you in it? grade school. With all that, here is my interview with Chef David Shim of Coat Restaurant, recorded just after the Memorial Day weekend in New York City. Here you go. We just came out of the Memorial Day weekend. That's always a funny weekend. Were you open the whole weekend? We were open the whole weekend. Including the holiday. Yes. What was it like here? The vibe actually was pretty smooth. It uh-huh. was very family-oriented. You know, I think there were, we had a lot of people that might wanted to barbecue outside, but it was the, the weather was great. I think it was like in, in the 80s. Yeah. So I think we had a lot of people that wanted to spend the day outside, but didn't have, have the chance or the tools to spend it outside. Yeah. They came to the restaurant. Okay. So, so this had, was their barbecue. Yeah, it was okay. their barbecue, not outside, but yeah. at the restaurant. Yeah. And we had a lot of um, families, yeah. kids. Yeah. Uh, we also had a lot of graduation. Oh, sure. Is, yeah. you know, we're very happy that people are celebrating with us. Interesting. And it was it was a very warm environment that's for, great for us because some weekends are really like rough for everybody as as a restaurant you know because we have to take care of a lot of different guests to a lot of covers but whereas memorial day weekend was just you know everybody had good energy and yeah. everybody was just happy to be here and i yeah. think it was you know what we feel what the guests feel we kind of like rub off at each other and it was really a cool cool scene it's kind of. Not, I've always liked New York City during the, at holidays. If you're here, because a lot of people travel out, yeah, and you know you don't, you don't get the normal crowd in, but you yeah, get the crowd that really appreciates the restaurants or yeah. the establishment, and I think it it definitely takes a different mindset to to service them, but at yes. the same time you get something back that you you don't get from you know your normal New York clients. Sure. Okay, so you uh, let's let's talk about how you found your way to the kitchen. Because okay. you, if I've if I've done my homework correctly, you were originally you didn't just have aspirations of, but you actually did you start on the path toward being a pro soccer player? Um, yes, I did. Okay, um, I guess I played soccer all my teens, high school. You know, I tried to get onto the college team, but I, due to whatever reason, I didn't did not make the squad. And, yeah, um, with my father's connection i had a management friend of the parents that had me um, come to brazil okay this is from i should say you're originally from seoul yeah okay so from seoul korea and i'm a citizen here in the states which means that i cannot play in korea as a korean okay i would be a you know like an international 
player that they have to purchase, right? Which is a difficulty for me. Yes, and I would also have to go to the army if I wanted to play as a Korean. Player. Is that right? Yes, that's a requirement there. Yeah. Of of I don't know the I don't know this uh, uh, rule. Is that a, is that a requirement of all citizens the way it is in Israel, or is that something specific like to athletes in, or public in figures? In Korea, you have to go to the army okay. if you're a male. Okay. So if I were to you know reclaim my citizenship in Korea, right. that I would, would be to, one of the yeah, that would be part of the cost of doing business. So looked around different countries, and you know I was lucky enough to go to um, Brazil. Yeah. I was in a small village called Araras, which is actually the village that Roberto Carlos was born. Oh wow. Yeah. He grew up there, I believe. And okay. You know, I tried to walk onto a small Division Three team in Brazil. Yeah. And I was there for about, I would say, four and a half months trying to make. And this was when I was already 21, which okay. is quite old for... For a, a pro athlete, yeah. yeah. So this was my last shot. Yeah. I tried to give it all as much as I can, yeah. you know, for about four months, you know, literally working out, playing every day, yeah. eight, nine hours a day. You and really wanted it. I, yeah. And yeah. this was, I think... One thing in my life that I really was like, if I don't make this, I don't know what to do with my life. Mm. So, you know, and then after four months, there were a lot of tryouts, first cut, second cut, and yeah. didn't make it into the second cut. And the, the manager of the club asked if you want to stay for another season, which would be you know six months or so out for another cut or yeah. tryout, yeah. then maybe you might have another second wind at it. Yeah. And I said, you know what, you know, I think by then I'll be already going into my 20, 21, 22. Yeah. Whereas these 17 year old, 16 year olds already had a, you know, a spot on the position, on the squad. Yeah. So I said, you know, thank you so much for your opportunity. And I came back to the States. Wow. So can I just ask you, um, if you don't mind me getting a little personal no, right no, from the beginning, you know, we just said hello. You, 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 I even, you know, I can't remember actually if it was on mic or before that, but I mentioned, you know, asked how busy it was. Mm -hmm. And you said, well, you know, I said, you're a hot restaurant. And you said, well, we're very, you know, lucky, you know, it's a very modest statement. Uh, you seem like a soft-spoken person. <laughs> uh, you just described a very intense desire you had. You described yeah. very intense training. So obviously, team sports or individual sports, mm -hmm. that's a very intense... Do you have like another... Do you, do you have like a like a game face? Like another? Is there another personality for David Shim that, that uh, comes out like when you're um, on a field or in a kitchen? <laughs> so, you know, Simon and I interact a lot. Sure. Before, so this is Simon Kim, the owner yeah. of founder of the restaurant. So before we open, you know, we would interact a lot. We would throw ideas. Yeah. And, you know, we he kind of jokes at it when it's super busy or when I'm in that mode of like like you know something's not going the way I, I wanted to and yeah I'm just very quiet I don't have this like excitement to my face he calls he calls it the raccoon face the raccoon face yeah, meaning like what my you know my eyes are like kind of sharp yeah I've, I have I don't have any smile my I have a little frown on my forehead and I just look at everybody with this like death stare that yeah. she's like all right and maybe it's time for me to not be in the kitchen and be away and maybe come back <laughs> in a little bit so i think i do go through that you know throughout the day time to time and in your own way in my own way okay but people who worked with you know how to read that and yes okay. and you know the guys that's been working with me they once i'm in that mode and usually we like to joke around in the kitchen when it's busy so that the tension is off yes and when that happens it's more just like Yes, chef. We chef. And yeah. just quiet and everything just flows until it needs to be fixed. And I'm yeah. back to my, you know, 
kind of cool or chill state. Right. So the, the other thing I want to ask before we talk about how you found your way to cooking, right, mm-hmm. is, and maybe it's a good segue, I don't know, is, you know, for me, everything, all my pursuits have to do with, like, upper body, like, it's all about the hands, right? Mm-hmm. I, I play tennis, uh, which is actually, for people who play, they know that actually is a lot about footwork also, although you, yeah, can, yeah. you don't really think about it that way a lot of the time. Um, uh, I cook, you know, I'm about to start playing guitar. Nice. I write. That's all stuff with your hands, right? Mm-hmm. You played a sport, and this soccer has always been, like, had a mystique for me mm-hmm. because I just don't understand it. My head, I've tried to play, you know, just pick up games and stuff. My son played for a while. Mm-hmm. I, I can't play soccer. It's it's <laughs> using my feet in that manner feels so completely, like a whole different mindset mm. to me. Does this make sense, what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, I, I completely see it. So was that, was it, was cooking something you had done in your life before you started pursuing it as a possible profession? Or were you more oriented towards sort of, does this make sense? Like yeah, yeah, more yeah. sort of like foot-oriented I mean, things. Think, you know, for, if we're going to go back that far, I feel sure. like, I've always had a thing for sports. Uh-huh. So soccer season will be full on soccer season. Yeah. In this in the winter it'll be indoor season or turf season. So yes. we'll be playing turf. And as you say, like in high school I played a little bit of tennis. You did. I played Were you not were you good? I would imagine you Um I played on varsity, so yeah. I guess I was okay. Yeah. And you know, I did I did play a little bit of badminton because okay. our our gym provided with the very like, yeah. intensive course. Yeah. And for me like Cooking was never a career that I thought I would seek. Mm-hmm. I did ta- I did work in high school as you know in the summer jobs, trying to make money. You know, bus tables at restaurants, yeah. or you know, go help my dad's friend's restaurant with yeah. some stuff, but ne- never professionally. It was just a way to make a yeah. little money. Where, where, at what point did you move to the states? How old were you? I was ten. Okay, and you know, I've been living in Jersey ever since. Okay, and whereabouts? Fort Lee, Palisade Park, okay. Richfield, you know, the K-Town area Got of it. Jersey. And you still live in New Jersey? Now I'm in Queens okay. with my wife. Okay, yeah. great. Okay, so 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 what's the what was the first thing that sort of started pulling you toward? Once you stopped with the soccer um, and made that painful decision, <laughs> what was the first thing that kind of drew you into the kitchen? Mm, I guess when I came back, I was a little depressed. Yeah, sure. Because I thought... Um, as a teen or early 20s, I think this was the first time I've actually hit a wall that I thought I was, I would never top. I thought I was just, I was just going to be stuck there forever because I was so depressed. It's um, like a period of mourning, yeah. isn't it? Or grief. I came back. Yeah. I didn't meet any of my friends, nor did I go to my usual soccer clubs that I play here in Jersey. Yeah. I just kind of shut myself off and started thinking, what do I need to do? What yeah. do I need to do? And, I went to Rutgers before that, and I didn't want to go back to that school. Yeah. And I was looking for something that was more interactive. And I always wanted to be some sort of field that was related to hotels because I thought it was a very interesting field so okay. that you can see all different people that travel to your hotel to yeah. interact with them or maybe have the chance to be on a hotel management route where you can go to different properties to yeah. see different parts of the world. And not a lot of that program was available in Jersey mm-hmm. and um, and I was looking at different programs to see what might fit me the best and yeah. I happened to take a tour to CIA the Culinary Institute of America 
because after the culinary aspect, they did offer a um, restaurant or hospitality management program, which I thought, if I do that, maybe I can travel the world, see the, see different wor- parts of the world that work in the hotels. Sure. And as the tour, the first classroom that was introduced was called Skills One. Okay. Which was literally one of your first classes that you take when you go to the CIA. And it's literally the chefs teaching you how to do basic uh, knife work. Knife work. Dice. Dice. Julienne. Batonette. All that stuff. Yeah. And we stopped at the classroom and they were talking to us about, you know, 10, 15 minutes about what this classroom was about. And I see a room with probably 20 kids literally standing right next to each other with one cutting board. And then there is a chef with the timer clicking start. And all you see is everybody starts chopping. Every start, everybody starts to peel, cut, dice. And I'm thinking, wow, this is pretty neat, you know. And then the chef clicks the timer again. Whoever is done, bring it up to be graded. I'm like, oh, so there is actually competition in this. Like, I got to be faster than the one next to them. Yeah. I got to be faster than the one behind me, exact, be more precise and exact. And I was like, I think I can, I think I might like this. Yeah. So I applied. Yeah. I told my parents, my dad was like, get out of my house. I don't ever want to see you. I was like, why? You know, like, why are you going from sports to culinary? You know, like, why would you do that? And I was like, you know, whatever. Like they saw this in the traditional yeah. sort of blue collar. Exactly. Yeah, and I don't want to. I don't want to speak stereotypically. So you, please tell me if you disagree with this. There are certain cultures in this world where that is still more of the attitude than it maybe is. Like it's more accepted now in the U.S., right? Or for people of mm-hmm. American origin. I, I know other people of Korean descent yeah. for whom their parents uh, were very against. Um, against. Uh, Huni Kim told me when he declared his mom didn't talk to him for a year yeah, I mean. and still holds it <laughs> against him. I mean, that was public. It was in the interview for this yeah. show. Yeah, so I'm not surprised. But that, do you agree with that statement? Yeah, because for me too, like coming from a, I, I would, I kind of find sports as a flashy career because if you make it, you're top of the world. If you don't, then you, you're nobody. Yeah. And coming from a field like that, you know, my dad was like, get out. I was like, are you really going to do this to me? I finally found something that I might be excited that I wanted to do. And, you know, we lived in the same house, but for a couple of months, it was just like I was just rooming in the apartment. You, know? you came and went. You were like a ghost in the house. You came in, you went to your room, you... Yeah, and yeah. went to school, Didn't talk back. to anybody. And Oof. Was that hard? That must have it been was, awful. It was. Really were you and your hard. dad, can I ask, were you close? Yeah, for me, you know, my dad was always a brother figure. Like, even up until high school and college, we would still play soccer together, mm. wrestle, wrestle on the field, you know, like... It was he was always like, you know, really pushed me to be who I wanted to be, you know, when mm-hmm. I was pursuing soccer. So for him to shut me off, I, you know, it was it was little, it was quite hard. Yeah. But um, I found joy in going to culinary school. Mm-hmm. I really found joy that um, you know, it's there's people that's been in the industry four or five years. There's people that's never been in the industry, but it's all like. Who can who can succeed? You know, it was always like who can be the top ten percentile of the class so that you can be, you know, the best you can be. And yeah. I think that really drove me into um, being where I am now. So you're describing a um, it, 
I'm trying to think how to say this. You're just, it sounds like, I mean, you're describing, you seem to have a real um, passion for excellence. I mean, when you, because you do, you, you do come off very modest, but I can see that's different from having your actions speak for themselves. Mm -hmm. That seems to, is that you're smiling as I say that? That seems to me to be a common thing between sports and cooking. Yes. You know, like Tony Bourdain used to always say cooking was a, uh, a pure meritocracy. Mm -hmm. That appeals to you. 100%. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. And it's, you know, my wife kind of makes fun of me because she says, you still, you still work like you're playing sports. Yeah. In the way that, like, I like to push myself till I'm, like, dead tired. Yeah. Or, like, work those crazy hours so that I feel like I physically did something. Right. You left it all on the yeah. field, right? In sports then, terms. Then you come home and, you know, take a shower or grab a beer, whatever it is to wind down. Yes. And makes you happy, you know, and she still yes. calls me a lunatic for that, but, you know. I because guess, what? Because you feel like you have to earn that moment? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And she's, she, you know, she's seen me work in the kitchen and she constantly says, you kind of thrive for the, the peak of service when yeah. it's like crazy. And I kind of tell her like the, the high that you get from like when you're so backed up and you do everything in your power to push it all out. Yes. And, 30 minutes, 40 minutes later, you just clear the, clear the board, like the feeling that you right. get, like the, that I achieved something yes. great. You know, yeah. it's like, it's really weird. It really is weird. Like yeah. it's nothing that you can, it's like scoring a goal in soccer. You know, like I used to be the center defense, so yeah. I don't get a lot of chance to score goals. Yeah. But once you do, it's like this joy that you just can't, like you just like scream, yeah, and you just can't hold yourself. And I think you kind of get that off of working in the kitchen. Well, isn't the other thing also that, like, you, you score a goal, that's a moment where you come through, mm -hmm. right? But then the celebration is the team, Yes. right? Somebody scores an important goal, everybody has seen yeah, this, yeah. even if you're not a fan, you've seen it. Or in football, somebody makes a touchdown or whatever. The whole, all the teammates whole team, swarm yeah, them, yeah, sometimes yeah. they pick them up and carry them, right? So it's an individual moment, but it's also it's part the of the organism, yeah, which is a total metaphor for uh, professional kitchens. <laughs> Yeah? Yeah, I 100% agree. Were you, um, I know it didn't work out with soccer ultimately, but when you were doing various sports in high school and, and beyond, were you a clutch player? Like, were you, was it similar to what you're describing in a kitchen? Were you, like, at your best under under pressure when it had to happen? I, I would think so. Yeah. I think, you know, like, I think some of the, some of the memories that I still carry deeply playing sports is, like, all those games or times when you were down. Yeah. And then when you make the comeback, you know, there's no other feeling, yeah. better feeling than when you come from a 3-0 to win the game at 4-3. You know, yeah. like it's, yeah, I, I guess I am a clutch player. <laughs> yeah. So talk to me about, do you go to the CIA? What was that? Is that, was that, was that, what was it when you were, was it a two-year program? It was a two-year program. And I think they just started with the bachelor's. So you okay. can continue for another year and a half, two years to finish up your bachelor's degree. Mm -hmm. So for me... You know, I did the culinary and I thought I, I owed my parents the bachelor's degree as well so, so that I can kind of prove myself to them that I just did not go to a culinary school. So I did both. Mm -hmm. And was that meaningful to your dad? I think I think that really helped him open up a little mm -hmm. bit. And I think, um, you know, growing up with them, I don't think I ever held a job where it was other than helping my parents or helping my friend's dad or friend's yeah. parents. I think I never held a job that long, worked in 
intensive hours, yeah. crazy schedules. And I think when I was working at Gramercy Tavern, and this was, you know, probably one of the hardest jobs coming out of culinary school, crazy hours, and, you know, trying to be at in New York City by 7 in the morning, I would have to take, like, the 5.15 bus to get oh. there on time, and we'll be back at 6, you know. And my dad saw that for about a couple of months, and he was like, he really... To respect it. Yeah, and I think it really took him about a year and a half, two years from him to actually see that he's not just doing doing this to get by. He's actually going to stick around to do this for his life. And wants to excel. Yeah. Yeah. Was Gramercy an externship or was that your first post? It was an post? It was. So what, can you just orient me time-wise? What year were we? Like, what years were you at CIA? I entered CIA 2004 or okay. five. Okay. And I think I worked there. I finished my culinary program 2007-ish. Okay. And I did my externship at Gramercy. And this was um, my last two weeks, I remember, was when Chef Mike Anthony joined the team. So this... Oh, wow. Right then. Yeah. Okay. That was a big moment in time. Yeah. Yeah. And I saw Chef Mike Anthony for about two, two and a half weeks. And I had went back to school. I finished up. I think I was done by maybe 2008 or nine. Okay. Because it was a shorter, I wasn't, I, I, it was a shorter program for the bachelor's program for me. Yeah. Because it was pretty new and I was, you know, I was able to finish as soon as I can to yeah. be, be in the field. Got it. Okay. So you finished school. And then where do you set your site? Like, where, how, you know, this is this thing I love about what you do for a living. You kind of, like, start to chart a course that's going to give you the experience. And it may not be apparent, right, when you're out mm -hmm. of school, right? But that's going to start to give, where you can sort of like a snowball, right? Yeah, Amass yeah. influences 100%. that will help you do the kind of food you ultimately mm -hmm. want to do. Did you have a sense at that point in time what you were going to be about as a chef? Or were you just looking to start getting your feet wet and start getting into kitchens and and kind of trial and error and experimenting? I think it was more of like getting my feet wet. Because okay. at, at school, they, they don't warn you about what the industry is going to be like. What do you mean, just the rigors of like the a real rigors, kitchen? They don't? They give you that brief introduction <laughs> as an externship. Okay. But a lot of a lot of times they're like, oh, you're going to, you know, Culinary, Culinary Institute of America, you excel, you're going to be a chef in no time. Really? That's like type of the mindset you kind That's of, unspoken, yeah. but that's the vibe? That's so interesting to me. Because they try to keep the excellence, the best program, you know, like... Yeah. And, you know, little did I know, that's definitely, that definitely wasn't the case. Yeah, well, there's a huge gap. This yeah. has come up on the show. I don't, and I don't mean to make light of um, actual military service, mm -hmm. right? But I always say it's like the difference between, you know, boot camp and combat. 100%. I mean, or, yeah, or yeah, between yeah. a flight simulator and flying a plane. Mm -hmm. it's, it's all theoretical until you're yeah. in a real service, right? Or to put it in sports terms, there's a huge difference for anyone who's, you know, like for me, it was tennis. You learn how to hit the strokes and all that. The minute someone starts keeping score and there's another person actually trying to, like, destroy you, that's different. <laughs> yeah. That is different from skills. 100%. Right? Yeah, yeah. After culinary school, I was yeah. looking at different jobs and happened to walk into this small restaurant, which was across the street from Gramercy, called Veritas. Yeah. Was this the Sam Hazen phase? Who this was the chef? Was 
before Sam Hazenface. It was um, a chef named Gregory Pujin. Okay, so after named, Scott Bryant. Yeah, after Scott who Bryant. Who opened it. It was like yeah. two and a half years of the phase. Okay. Where, and I spent, I believe, almost two years as one of my first big job in New York City. Working, yeah. you know, those back then, it was crazy hours. And it was a kitchen that I think I still appreciate the most where I've picked up so many skills that I still hold dearly to till this day. Can we just say, before you say all that, we should explain for people who aren't familiar, Veritas, it's a cute name. Mm -hmm. It was a wine-focused restaurant. The original owners had, there were a couple of guys. They all had amazing wine cellars. Um, the food, the idea was, it was this, and this wasn't tortured. I actually think they did it very well, mm-hmm. was that the food was not like, uh, it wasn't like um, cutting edge, uh, off the rails, mm-hmm. n- new food. It was very classically done and it was meant to complement great wine. Yeah, I mean, that was sort of the idea behind it. So there was always, at least in the early, like when Scott was there, there was always, there was a seasonal lobster salad mm-hmm. and, and there was always a, some either a grilled steak or a braised meat and, yep. you know, they hit all the marks and then you could order these fantastic wines if you could afford to. Crazy wine. Yeah. And, um, and that was sort of the through line through all the chefs who came after Scott. Yeah. And, yeah. The, and it's also not the easiest kitchen from a, um, from a, um, from a facility point of view, that's yeah. it's it's a it's like a lot of New York kitchens. It's a little funky. It's a little less tight. Mm-hmm, it's very tight. Yeah. And then you know the the chef that we I used to work with, he was classically trained French guy. Like yeah. His accent was so heavy that like you know I still remember the first day I went went into work, he was like, "Get me uni." I was like, "Okay." I brought him a tray of uni, and he's like, "What are you doing?" I was like, "You asked me to get me uni." I was like. No, get me some, get me the uni. I was like, okay, I bring it back. I was like, I don't know what he's talking about. He's like, and then the sous chef's like, he needs the honey. I was like, oh, oh my God. <laughs> All right, well, this is going to be a rough couple of weeks. Yeah. And from then, you know, like from simple skills as like how to tornado vegetable to classical sauces to like a lot of stuff that you will, you will, you won't learn in, you know, some of these kitchens because it's very fast paced yeah. to, mass produced to different type of cuisine. You know, like I really, really, really was lucky that I worked there and I still, you know, call him up time to time and ask him how he's doing. Your chef. Yeah. Where's he now? He's in Miami. Oh really? My yeah, hometown. He, yeah. yeah. He works at the Biltmore hotel. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I grew up a mile from that hotel. Yeah. yeah. I used to play tennis there as a kid. So it he, wasn't, it was at the time it was a shuttered world war two hospital. I see. Yeah. It was a hotel. Then it was a world war two hospital. Wow. And then it was a place that like kids would break into. It was closed forever. Now it's a very ritzy yeah, hotel like down there. Yeah. Yeah. Right? There's a golf course and a spa. He's awesome. the chef there. Yeah. Oh wow. He's the okay. chef at the French restaurant. Uh huh. So, sure. You know, I still take everything that we've done in that kitchen and it's... So this was a real mentor figure. Yeah, yeah, really, really mentor, real mentor. He was so good, you know. And like, took the time to teach, took the would time show to you teach. things. He would crush you if you can't follow, you know, follow through. Like yeah. He would give you the most annoying s- speech about how you can't do this after showing it to you for five, ten times. And yeah. you just kind of suck it up, go to the corner, practice until you get it and come back. You know, that's, that's the type of environment you know, yeah. I lived in for two years, but I think it really developed character that you, there's nothing that you cannot do. Yeah. 
just suck it up and keep on trying. You know, yes. that was that was the mentality that I had Got it. working there. So there were moments of of criticism. There were yeah. moments of embarrassment, probably. Yeah. But you were down for that. 100%. You were willing to absorb that and get to the other side yeah. of that. Okay, it didn't bother you yeah. really. I mean, it didn't feel good in the moment, but sure, you didn't have sure. a you didn't have a philosophical issue. With no, it. not at all. Not yeah. at all. Because I mean, you know, growing up playing soccer, it's like a co- it's, like a hard ass coach. Yeah, it's, yeah. Sometimes you get it worse. Sometimes it's great. So yeah. You just gotta learn to cope with it. Okay. So where'd you go from there? And then I was lucky enough to work at uh, Mr. Robichon's restaurant in yes. uh, Four Seasons. Okay. And there I spent about I think just a little over a year. Yeah. And. That was another kitchen I was just so fascinated about, you know, like there's a lot of new flavors, bold flavors, but a lot of the techniques are still very true to what his beliefs were, which was, you know, he's he was the chef of the century, you know. Yeah. And he literally owns all the credentials of making this happen. Yeah. So, you know, that was a year and a half of also very intensive, you know, like same it was the same environment going back to back you know yeah why can't you do this why don't you know this all right okay we'll make it happen yeah did you um so you're describing two very i mean in in their own ways classic settings in a way classic food in a way or food in a classic tradition yeah french classic french tradition classic french did you think that's where you were headed or did you have other things in the back of your mind i I think I happened to step into that pool of water. Yeah. And I kind of fell for it, you know? Like, yeah. And I guess this comes from, like, the detail or the excellence of, like, why does this tournée has to look the same 12 times in a row? Yeah. Why does the brunoise got to look the same? Because it has to. Because that's the only way that they accepted it. Yeah. And I think that was one thing that I kind of, kind of enjoyed and respected deeply. And I, you know, since then, you know, I feel that's where I wanted to be. Yeah. And I, when I had the chance to go to Mr. Robuchan's restaurant, I yes. was like, of course, of course I'll go. Yeah. Of course I'll How go. did that opportunity come into your life? Well, the chef at Veritas used to work for the Robuchan chef. Okay. Back, back then. Yeah. And, you know, he got me in touch with the executive chef at Robuchan and asked if I can get an interview with him. And, wow. you know, kind of worked out you know i was this guy really believed in you and yeah and i he really he really helped me through and coached me through the two years yeah. so that i can be successful for the rest of my career yeah okay so then wh- again how, how would you what's the dotted line that brings us to what you do now like when did you start to after Robuchan, um i got a call from a very old friend you know since childhood that yeah. he's gonna open up a restaurant i was like okay you know sure when when it happened because i didn't know how difficult it was to open a restaurant but yeah. i had a little glimpse of how long it took as a process yeah. so he reached out and he was like i might open up a restaurant i was like sure when it's you know when you have a space when you do this then give me a call because yeah. i just can't jump on the boat right now yeah yeah and a couple of months later, he called me back again and said, I'm going to open a, up a Korean barbecue restaurant called Crystal Belly. I was like, okay. Are you guys, you know, are you all ready? Can I come join? What's the deal? And we were looking for a space. We were about to sign up space. And then 
when all those things were happening, he was like, okay, I need you to come now. So about a year and a year and a couple of week, a month or two into Robichon, I told him, you know, I'm going to have to give you my notice because you know, I'm looking to open up a restaurant yeah. with somebody else. And then it happened. Korean barbecue, you know, Crystal Belly with, um, that was like probably the hardest and the most rewarding two and a half years of my life. Really? Yeah. And your role there was? I was the executive chef. You were for the yeah. go. Okay, so you're of Korean descent, mm-hmm. Korean barbecue. What was your own personal relationship to that style of food or the traditional version of that food? Like, what was your own um, familiarity with it, uh, relationship to it, uh, affection for it, or was it something that you weren't all that well versed in? I think it was a lot of um, childhood memories. Okay, you know, like thinking about making this food happen, thinking about making this cuisine happen, I think it brought a lot of memories that why I really like to enjoy these these type of food when I was a kid. Yeah. And I think Korean food in Korea to Korean food here in the States is a little different because of the ingredients, because of the taste, you know, and I think we try to keep the tradition, keep the taste as bold as possible or yeah. as as close to it as possible. Yes. But I think it it transitions or it changes tr- as it comes over. Even in uh, you know the even in the quote unquote Korea town of a certain city. Yeah, I think it's it can get as close as good as or the sure. best as it can get. But I think it definitely translates a little differently. Okay, and I I think that's that's actually a great thing because we're creating a different, not a different, but a, a slightly modified or you know type of food that really fits the locality of the cuisine sure and for me it was you're not trying to make a round fit a a square peg in a round hole in terms of your ingredients or right because at some point you have to at some point you have to um submit Mm -hmm. to the qualities of your i don't mean the qualities good or bad i mean the characteristics of of what is that what you're saying like i think what you're presented with locally Mm -hmm. yeah and and for me to coming coming from a very French restaurant for the last three, four years yeah. and trying to pick something completely different, it definitely was a challenge. It definitely uh-huh. was a challenge. What was running the menu like? Running the menu was a little intense because, you know, French cuisine to a lot of different restaurants, it's about there's a lot of plating to yeah. different, different garnishes to... You know, if a saute passes onto the past, there's might be a sauce that goes on it. There's yeah. a garnish that goes on right. it. There might be two different two different stations picking up the same ticket where you're kind of like synchronizing like an orchestra to bring it all together. Whereas like, you know, the kitchen that at Crystal Valley was more like everything was quick fire. We fire this, we need this in five, six minutes, we fire right. that. It just constantly on the flow. And and to and to create what was a childhood memory that you know personally didn't have too much of a professional training behind yeah it was hard you know i did my own research did go through a lot of r&d tastings to ingredient sourcings to you know criticizing by others that yeah you know, but i think i think i kind of fa- found myself there interesting as in like 
where can I go in this industry that will that I'll be able to top myself over? Would it yeah. be a French kitchen? Would it be an American contemporary, American Italian? And I think deep down, it kind of sparked that eventually, I don't know when if this was the chance or there might be another chance in the future. That yeah. Eventually, I think I kind of believed that I would end up back here as a Korean to further Korean cuisine to you know broaden the knowledge that it's not just K-Town that sells Korean food. Sure. Whereas there's, you know, Korean food is not only about bulgogi or japchae. Yeah. There's a lot more to it. There's a lot more depth to it. Yes. You know, and I think that's, I think that was the, that was the part really kind of felt heartwarming and kind of giving it back to myself kind of way. It sounds like you learned a lot about yourself. I did. I did. Yeah. Did that surprise you? I was quite surprised because, you know, I thought being working in this uh, restaurant business, being so challenging, so unforgiving that I thought I would just be doing what I like to do, which was back then, you know, the type of food that I was cooking. Yeah. And coming into this, like, it's not only about what you like. It really becomes personal in the sense that I'm sure you have your favorite childhood memory of sure. eating something that yeah. really sparks joy that you were at the table with your parents or your friends or cousins that really gives you that memory and I think this was actually the first time that really sparked that for me to actually appreciate it yeah and food was food then to that moment was a little different it was just you know I think this was the first glimpse of where I learned that it's not the food that I want to eat that I'm going to serve to my customers. It's the food that the customers wants to eat that I can prepare at my best ability. That you're like the most suited to provide or among the most suited to provide. Was there, you mentioned that story when you went to the Culinary Institute and took the tour Mm -hmm. and they were being timed, right? And that was like something that sparked something in you, right? That woke up something in you. Yeah, yeah, really did. Okay, was there a moment when you were doing your R&D or maybe even later in the lifespan Mm -hmm. of that first restaurant that you were the chef for, uh, was there a dish or was there a moment in the R&D or was there a moment where something went out of the kitchen, whatever, where you sort of do you remember a moment where you kind of hit you what you just described to me about that food I, where it sort of gelled yeah I would have to say as as typical or cliche it might be I think it really had to be the the bulgogi dish the marinated thinly sliced short rib yeah because that took for me a lot to get to get to where we needed to get yeah, and a lot of the R and D sessions would be four or five of us sitting at a table, eating the dish. This was what you, your cooks, and the owner. Yeah. Okay. Me, me my sous chefs, yeah. and the owner or people that yeah. really had something to say about. Sure. And you know, it's been a really long time working in the restaurant business where you can actually sit down for R and D slash meal with your loved ones or your, you know, technically your family because you see more of your staff than your, you know, absolutely <laughs> wife, husband, son. There's a reason they call it family meal, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I think that was the first time it kind of started, you know, 
bringing back little bits of your yearning for your, you know, childhood yeah. or your love for the company. Yes. Because you know, and I know, working in the business, family meal is is usually eaten standing around while you're kind of prepping, or yeah. and didn't really get to enjoy a meal, you yeah. know. And I think that really helped me see that. Sure, when we're talking about the dish, it's yeah. very critical and personal to me. Yeah, but it's actually not personal if nobody likes it and I'm the only one that like it, then something's wrong with me. Mm. You know? I yeah. feel like as a chef, you can't win over 100% of your guests. But you, if you win majority of the guests, I feel like you, I'm on the right path of making it good or yeah. great. Yeah. I don't think there is ever is a perfect food, but there's a lot of great food. Yeah. So I feel if I'm the only one that thinks this is the great food or the good food and nobody else thinks so on the table then I feel that I'm the one at fault yeah although I I mean you and I just we met once when I came Mm -hmm. to dinner but uh, I I probably don't know you well enough to say this but that seems like a very punitive way to look at it to me because like I think if you look at a lot of uh, uh, I feel like you're being hard on yourself because you can there can be something you personally just enjoy but you need to be aware of mm-hmm. and sensitive to what connects best with your diners, yes. right? But I don't think that makes the thing you enjoy objectively Maybe not bad, bad, but... I think if you dig in on that, as sure. some chefs do, then you're an indulgent, mm-hmm. probably fiscally irresponsible chef, and that you're going to have problems, <laughs> especially in 2019. Yeah. <clears throat> Maybe you could have been a little more like that 30 years ago. People would put up with it, yeah. you know? No one's interested in the tortured artist mm-hmm. chef anymore, right? That's over. Nobody, yeah. yeah. But, um, but what I was going to say is, you know, like if you look at throughout, like if you look at filmmakers, right? Mm-hmm. Very often a director's, like the thing that's thought of as their masterpiece is really is the thing that connected most with the critics and the audience, right? But very often a director's favorite movie of their own is not that movie. Yeah. That's very common, you know? But I don't think that means it's just that's their personal favorite. Does that is that a good yeah, is yeah, that a reasonable I, analogy? I think that yeah, I think that's a good analogy. And I yeah, I, maybe it's it's not bad, but it's something like you say. I should you know take it to own it up to fix it for the so, for the public. Yeah, yeah, totally. I get that. Uh, I hope it's okay. I said that. No, no, no. Uh, you know, I was just, cause I was just recently out, we were talking about Alfred Hitchcock and most people would say like his masterpiece was like Vertigo. His favorite movie was this movie called Shadow of a Doubt, which unless you're a film buff, most people probably don't even know that movie, <clears throat> but it's an amazing movie. Right. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean it's one's, it doesn't mean he was crazy to think that it just meant that was, a, that, was that made like him it. the happiest, yeah, yeah. you know? Um, okay. So I, here's a question for you. Within the realm of steakhouse, mm-hmm. okay, like I was looking, getting ready to talk to you, I was online looking at the menu for this restaurant, and there's even a page with like all the cuts of meat, right? All the pictures. Of the just the cuts, yeah. not dishes, just the cuts. And, you know, it's interesting to me because this, you know, traditionally a steakhouse, at least in the United States is the last place you would look for a chef to be expressive in the way you were just mm-hmm. talking about or personal. You know, it was, it was, 
you know, these are the different cuts and cream spinach and, and a Caesar salad mm. maybe or whatever. And, but you wouldn't look, you know, everyone kind of just, you know, maybe you could do it. It's kind of the way traditional French food was, mm-hmm. you know, like everyone basically has the same menu and sure. it's just who's doing the best duck all orange, right? <laughs> yeah. How do you find places within the confines mm-hmm. of a steakhouse menu to, ex- to express yourself? I think the way that I was or we as Coat was successful is we really tried to marry the two concepts together. Like as a Korean steakhouse yeah. or Korean barbecue yeah. with an American steakhouse. Okay. And, you know, I think if we see our menu, the first half, first part of the menu is shareable appetizer where you would see similar items in different steakhouses, such as the wedge salad, shrimp cocktail, the bacon, you know. Right. And it really took a lot to, how do I make this our food? And it came from, like, beliefs of, switching out ingredients to mimicking the flavor to the textures to and I think thinking in that uh, R&D way I think really brings forth what I used to do back with the you know French cuisines to yeah. you know if there is a sauce or if there is something there needs to be a texture there needs to be a crunch there needs to be salt there needs to be sweetness and that kind of really helped me you know figure out what the flavor profile of the things that we wanted to hit. Yeah. And at the same time, as the Korean aspect, we try to be as bold as possible and um, try to be true to what Korean food is, what people, what we think, you know, what kimchi should be, you know, what we think, you know, the soy, the doenjang should be. And I believe it really helped as a collective factor yeah. that our team had, you know, Simon to Tom, Victoria, everybody had such a great way of giving me feedback. Okay, you're talking about Tom, uh, Pitch, Pitch, I don't want to mispronounce it. Tom Brown. Oh, Tom Brown, yeah. a different Tom. Yeah. Okay. And I think our, you know, Simon and I, we still argue, we still fight, you know, like brothers, but, yeah. you know, because of... I kind of see our team as a circle. Okay. As that everybody kind of fits in into the circle without being a point. Okay. Which means we're... There's no head of the table. We're like a little bubble. If if somebody was a triangle, it'll poke out through the the circle. If somebody was a square, they'll poke out of the the circle. Okay. Everybody's kind of well-rounded yeah there's maybe there's an octagon where it's almost a circle yeah you know that it kind of rolls rolls around the surface but yeah you know because of that i think without being personally you know like we talked about maybe too much of a burden on myself of all the criticism all the you know r&d's i think we were able to kind of hit all different notes of what we wanted to do yeah so that i'm happy as a chef creating something new as a cuisine or as a restaurant, yes. whereas the owners are happy, the guests are happy, the beverage pairs well with the food, yeah. to service goes well, and 
it really became like you know a group effort instead of just one person trying to lead the whole group. Uh huh. Can you? So how did this come into your life? So Simon Kim, who owned, he had Piora, uh, Piora, which was in what do we call that? I guess the West Village. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was West Hudson Village. Street in New yep. York. Had a couple of years run down there. It's near mm-hmm. where the the clam is today. Yeah. Same block, I think. Um, Simon, I don't know Simon well. I've met him. Uh, he, to me, you guys are kind of like a Lennon McCartney thing. <laughs> like you're very, and I don't mean this at all as a criticism of him, but you're very quiet, soft spoken, at least public, outwardly. Simon is not. Simon is, uh, you know, he wears beautiful suits with power ties, yep. and he likes the limelight, and he's put built like a very flashy mm-hmm. kind of sexy restaurant here where you can do your very serious food, right? Is yeah, that yeah, accurate? Yeah. You guys complement each other personality-wise, or you seem to from I, the outside. I think so. I think we're we we're like completely opposite, so yeah. that we kind of need both of our personality to make, make yeah. something happen. Yeah, I mean, I was a, a friend of mine um, uh, was invi- when you guys got your Michelin star mm-hmm. the first time. There was a little reception downstairs. Yep. And I came, I came with him, and that was the first time I met Simon. And he was walking around and pouring people <laughs> champagne, and I mean, it was like a scene out of Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it really was. It, it really was, was, it was off the hook. Um, and then to meet you, it was like, oh my God, these guys could not be more different, <laughs> which is kind of cool. I mean, I think that's great. So, how did he come into your life? What was the first approach like? Oh man, so he still, he still holds a slight grudge on this one, okay. Because um, he called me for the first time about this project, I would say almost three years ago. Okay. Or no, almost three and a half years ago. Okay. Um, this was when I was working at MOL Steakhouse in Long Island City. Um, he called me up out of nowhere. He was like, hey. You guys have never met? I've never met. We had met- he been to eat at Krista Belly? He supposedly has. I've okay. never met through But he didn't introduce before. himself or... Okay. I, we met through a mutual friend. Okay. And he was like, hi, my name is Simon Kim. I would like to meet you, talk about some business, you know, maybe potential, potentially working together. Yeah. I was like, okay. And I'm thinking to myself, who is this guy? Yeah. You know, like he just called me out of nowhere asking to meet. I was like, sure, you know, let's meet. Why not? Yeah. And I think we met at... I don't some fancy hotel in Midtown Intercontinental or something like that at a cafe at the hotel lobby and you know normally I don't meet people in hotel lobbies because I just don't okay and we're sitting at the you hotel. mean you have a thing against it or no, it just no, doesn't just, seem to come up much come up much yeah. you know like, <laughs> it'll be it'll be at a cafe or maybe a, you know yeah, yeah, yeah. right I don't know some, yeah. somewhere yeah. where you can sit down and you know he. he we met at a hotel lobby and yeah. we're just talking. We're talking and talk about, he's talking about things that he wants to do, things that he has planned, the type of restaurant. Yeah. And he literally goes above and beyond and, you know, tells me the three year, one year plan, the three year plan, the five year plan. And I'm just like, okay, is, is this okay for, because I've never had anybody tell me, Anything more than, so I want you to be working at this restaurant as this position. This is your. We salary. need a chef. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I was like baffled. I was baffled on my train home back home. I was thinking, this guy's a scam artist. Like he's out to get me. Like he seemed like a hustler. Yeah. I was like, he's gonna hustle me. Like yeah. I'm gonna be. I'm gonna get punked. Right. And I was just like, no way somebody can tell me all this thing that 
you know, that he's going to do. He just shared his future with me. So did you, just so I'm understanding, you thought he was what, like a, like a dreamer or like a... Dreamer or somebody that... Pie might, in the sky. Yeah. And yeah, so, this is he, this guy's too full, like this is just... Yeah, this, too full of too himself. Too full of himself. What's he thinking? Like, who? nobody has that kind of confidence in a new restaurant. And I knew he had, he had Piora back then, yeah. but you know, like... Well-received restaurant. Very well-received. Yeah. So I was just like, you know, Simon, thank you for the opportunity, but, you know, I think yeah. I'm going to turn turn the offer down and to continue with my current yeah. job. Probably, And then time goes by, I would say maybe six to eight months later, he calls me up again. He's like, David, you got to come work with me. And then he, you know, talks about it again and again and again about all the things that we're going to do. And at the time, I couldn't leave because you know, I just had too much on my plate as well for me to just jump ship. Okay. I, I would be doing wrong for the other restaurant. Sure. So I told him, Simon, this is probably not the best time. And, you know, the timing is a little off. Thank you so much for calling me again, you know, and... Do you know why he, having not... Why was... Do you have any idea why he was so fixated on you? I think... I mean, with you guys not having known each other better or for him not being, like, a regular at your other place, like, this seems awfully invested in you for someone who maybe, it sounds like, had your food maybe once or twice. Yeah, and, I, you know, after after a while we spoke, and for him it was, you know, he didn't, he doesn't know me, he didn't know me, yeah. nor, did it, nor did we meet or work together, but yeah. on paper, he was like, this guy is the perfect fit. Okay. Because he had the classical French to contemporary American. Yeah. He also opened a Korean, Korean barbecue restaurant yeah. and also worked at a French French Quebecois steakhouse uh-huh. in Long Island City. He's like, what more? And from Korea originally. Yeah. yeah. He's like, what other chefs in New York or what? who has this type of resume that did all three bizarre yeah. cuisines? Yes. And he, he thought that he had to call back. And the third time around about, you know, I would say about almost a year before we actually opened Colt. Yeah. He was like, you got to come join. And I guess by then I was accepting as well. I was like, this guy called me three times. I was talking to my wife. He's like, maybe this is a real deal. Yeah. You know? In my mind, I picture him like calling you from like a private jet, you know, <laughs> eating caviar, <laughs> drinking champagne, like <laughs> looking down on New York. I mean, that's just kind of the way. He, yeah. yeah. That, that's how he parties. Yeah. You know? Like, and... <laughs> After that, it was that was it. You know, yeah. third time they call it third time's the charm. After yeah. the third time, it was like, all right, Simon, I think I'm in. You know, wow, over the phone, over the phone, and we met over and over again. Talked about little details of what we're gonna do. Did he have the space? I th- no, I think we so. Were still he wasn't looking, able to yeah. bring you somewhere and show you around. Like he, you didn't come physically where we're sitting right now and see this. Towards towards when he was very serious about pursuing this space. We did see it. Together? Yes. Okay. But, you know, there were a lot of spaces that he was seeing. When he was speaking to you, you said he gave you, like, the one-year plan, the three-year plan, the five-year plan. Okay, here we are. You guys are very well-reviewed. New York Magazine has named you, at one, you know, the best steakhouse in New York. Uh, there's a Michelin star. There's undercoat downstairs. Mm-hmm. Uh, how much of that was in the, the plan that he... Was that the plan? Does that, does that overlay the actual five-year plan that he told you? 
or come close? A lot of it does. It does. A lot of it does. Did he want a Michelin star? We, that was so. I think he was hitting for all those accolades to yeah. you know New York Magazine to Times Review to everything. And Michelin was not one of our agenda. Yeah, it really wasn't. You know, like even for you personally, with all the French background. Okay. I personally, I thought it would be. You know, we'll, we'll, we're, we were still reaching for the stars, I, th- I thought. Uh-huh. Know, we had so much more to do before we were ever even be part of being recognized into yeah. the pool. Yeah. And, but a lot of things that we've been working towards, too, it really is, you know, what he spoke three and a half years ago. You know, yeah. like he was saying, we're going we're gonna to we're gonna have the best team, best food, fun environment, we're going to be busy. I'm gonna do everything in my in my power so that you are happy. To we're gonna create this awesome team of management that we're gonna just crush everything. And it, you know, at first it was hard, yeah. sure, but yeah. eventually things started to line up. And you know, Simon having so much heart, so much passion that he really drove everything that he promised or he said that sure. he was gonna do. And you know, I think that's why we're here today. Yeah. So it's interesting, it right? Because really, it he 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 came off in one way, yeah. and that is his style, it's very forte. Very but it forte. doesn't mean uh, that doesn't mean that somebody's full of it, right? No, no. It just can be a genuine confidence yeah. and a genuine sense of like almost destiny. It feels like the and way belief. you're describing it, and belief, yeah. right? That's not a bad thing. Did any of that rub off on you, or do you feel like you had those things internally that he had kind of projects? Maybe, maybe, and because it actually isn't all that different in some ways from what you kind of very quietly yeah. through action and do, like and don't feel the need to trumpet. And we kind of talk it as you know, we we like to put a lot of sports analogies and yeah. stuff, and and I will always be that defender, whereas Simon's a striker. Interesting, you know, he can be the messy. You know, right. where where I'll be just be right by the goal or trying yeah. to make sure that nothing go passes my line. Yeah, and I think that's the dynamic that created such a well-rounded bond between Simon and I. Yeah, because like you say, he's flashy. He likes to w- walk the carpet. He likes to do hat tricks. He likes to celebrate. Whereas you know, as a team, we do celebrate when it happens. But sure. As as a member of the core team, I like to kind of you know, observe. That's my thing. I, yeah. You know, like when I kind of, during service, I kind of peep into the dining room. Uh-huh. I don't say much to anybody. I kind of observe, observe the room and see who's doing what, yeah. what, the, what the guest is like. And if there's a guest that's frowning or smiling, I go ask the manager what's wrong with that table. But I never like to approach the table it's stealth. Anyway. It's very stealth. Yeah. And I guess, and that's the type of person I am and that's the, that's the way I like to work. Uh-huh. Yeah, I get it. I get it. It seems like a great pairing. <laughs> it's also to me, I mean, I don't know if you'll agree with this or not, um, but, you know, historically there were all these, there was like, there are these, I feel like there's um, uh, almost like um, eras in terms mm-hmm. of chef proprietor relations, right? So for the longest time, proprietors ran the world. No one even knew the chef's name. I'm talking like pre-1970s, sure. right? Then all of a sudden, chefs get famous. They want to start being owners. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of famous professional divorces that happened <laughs> because both people wanted the spotlight or yep. both people wanted the power, right? 
And then I feel like this era we're in now uh, is like the, the it's kind of the age of like uh, the chef own chef proprietor. Um, harmony, right? Mm-hmm. Like both people can be in the spotlight. Both people can have a place. Yeah, yeah. Uh, both people, like you can kind of become whatever it is you want, right? Whether or not you need an ego stroke or mm-hmm. not, you can, both people can have it if they want it. You know, I mean, I mean, it was, a dis- I mean, now it's a sad <laughs> story to mention, but you look at like Joe Bastianich yeah. and like Mario, right? Uh uh, like that was a new model. It, yeah, that was I, a new model. And you guys are kind of in that realm, it seems like to me. I think it's living I think in it, harmony. But it's more built for the long term. Mm-hmm. You know, I think a lot of things, you look back at a lot of things like pre mid, pre 2004, 2005. I mean, again, a lot of these things, like they're horror stories now, right? Like Ken Friedman yeah. and April Bloom. Like it's just weird. But the idea behind that, mm-hmm. like both of those people and a lot, Nick Kakonis and uh, uh, Grant Ackett's, right? Mm-hmm. And Nick isn't even really a presence in the restaurants. He's really a businessman, you know, but he can create talk and be on yeah. social media. And, and Grant's one of the most famous chefs in the world. world yeah. But it works. Nobody's like jealous. Nobody, mm. right? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, but it, you guys seem to me in that mold. Maybe not intentionally so, or per- but it, you do but I, seem to... Yeah, I think we fit that model. You do, yeah. right? It works. It definitely works. Yeah. Everybody gets what they need. Yeah. Yeah. So what's what's going on here? Uh, you guys have the, the restaurants mm-hmm. plowing ahead. Um, I didn't know you well enough. I actually tried to come here two months ago, and I, <laughs> I couldn't get in. Um, uh, and uh, uh, you got the bar downstairs. Undercoat, yeah. Undercoat. Um uh, other plans, other like where are you guys right now in the sort of evolution of this place um, that you could talk about? If not, that's fine. I mean, personally, for me, it's you know I think we're going to be hitting year mar- two year mark next month. Okay, and I still, as a chef, I still have little nits and picks that I want to fix uh-huh. and the menu to the food to you know, the way things work in the kitchen. You have like a little personal private punch list that's maybe not apparent to the public, but for you, there's there's unfinished business. So that I can make coat right now, you know, it's been great. And now that we can make it a little bit greater or better, more efficient, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the things that I see are day to day thing, and for me to step away and actually see it as a third person, I think that's been the hardest challenge for me. Sure, but you know, there's like you say, there's definitely like a whole punch list that I really want to get behind and fix before before anything, if there's anything. Is that a punch list that once it's um, achieved? Is this stuff that you think would even be apparent to a regular customer, or is it more sort of very slight, real fine tuning that that to you stands out, but is maybe not that glaring to anybody else? I think it might be a mix of both, but uh-huh. more majority of it would be fine tuning so that it's a personal gain. But at the same time, I think those fine tuning will eventually translate to people that are dining here at Coat whether it be the way we change or decide to cut the meat yeah. or, you know, different types of meat that we might bring, we might be able to offer, you know, yeah. like those things definitely would show yeah. as a guest facing items. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Um, well, this has been great. Thank you. 
It's was fine. this okay? Yeah, you were a little yeah. hesitant when we sat down. No, no, Did we no. do all right? Yeah, it was, it's been <laughs> okay. actually pretty, very fun. Very great. Fun. All right. Well, thank you. Congratulations, by the. I got to tell you, I got to be honest. I didn't. You said you're just coming up on two years. Yeah. I didn't. I that I, two years. I, it feels like you guys have been here longer. It does. It feels like. It's so. It feels. You know. I want to knock on wood, <laughs> but it feels like such an established part of the fabric mm-hmm. already of dining in the city. Thank I mean, you. it's it's. Uh, you don't know what to say to that. No, I can tell. It's, it's, like it makes you uncomfortable, but it's. Uh, but it really does. I mean, you guys have a real thing on your hands. It's great. It's been fun to watch. And you know, like our. I think our simple mantra really works, which is we we joke around. I mean, we still make fun of it because it's kind of tacky but funny. Yeah. It's meat, fire, booze equals big smiles. And I think that really translates when people are having a great time with a little bit of booze. There's fire and meat happening. Yeah. And it's a very interactive dining scene. I think really makes the customers, you know, I think a lot of them kind of loosen themselves up a little bit more here. Whereas yeah. if you're at a, you know, if you're eating somewhere else where it's a plate for you, plate for her, plate for him. Yeah. It's, Instead of that, you're like, oh, I like, I want that piece of meat because that piece looks better to me than to you. Right. It's like, that's mine. Don't take it. You know. Right. Well, you're describing something primal. Yeah. And also, I didn't even say we're, we're sitting at one of the tables here. Mm-hmm. There. What do you call this technically in the middle? Um, we call it the. I mean, this this is the ring, and we call it the our tabletop grill. The tabletop grill. There's one in the middle of all the of every all the table. table. Yep. But you know, it's funny. This is a very common thing in Korean barbecue mm-hmm. restaurants. Uh, you know, a, a friend of mine in California has, uh, for probably 20, 30 years now, at each of his restaurants, there's always a candle in the middle mm. of every table. And his philosophy is, he had a moment one day, I should give credit, this is Bruce Martyr, mm-hmm. who has uh, Capo and other restaurants in Los Angeles. But he had this realization one day that that was how people ate Back in, I used the word primal a minute ago, but back in primitive times, you gathered around a fire. And he yeah. believes that that is something that's in our um, collective DNA, mm-hmm. right? That's in our collective yeah. subconscious and that that's a very powerful thing. Mm-hmm. Now here it happens to also be a method of cooking. Yep. But does that resonate with you when I say I, that? I think so too, definitely. Do you see, the, as I say yeah. it, do you, when you imagine this place full, do, do you feel like that has an effect on how people interact beyond the food itself? I I really do believe that because, you know, sometimes you've been here and when they yeah. grease up the grill and there's that big spark of flare yeah. and everybody just like, whoa, and I right. think that really draws them in. And at the same time that they find it fun. And I, yeah, you know, for me to, for, for a chef to be able to, you know, provide a, the guests with a fun time while eating yeah. your food, I think there's. Nothing, nothing better than, you know. No, that's great. Yeah. It also, to be honest, it bring, what was the equation you said? Meat, Meat, booze, fire. Fire. Equals big smile. Okay, now how many people who were doing an equation for their restaurant <laughs> would include the, the fire? Cook, fire. No, no one really, yeah. other than someone with a place like this. But also this kind of brings our conversation full circle, right? Because we were talking about Memorial Day and people coming in who didn't, maybe we're in New York. Most yeah. people don't have a grill. Maybe they have an illegal one on the fire escape <laughs> or hibachi or something. But that is a communal notion, mm-hmm. you know, beyond just the fact of how you're cooking the food at the table. That is something that does draw people in. 100%. Yeah. Okay. Well, on that note, 
thank you for doing this. I really thank appreciate you so much. it. Great it to pleasure. have you. This episode is brought to you by 100 Bogart, a new building in Bushwick, Brooklyn, that provides offices, co-working, event spaces, and a brand new podcast recording room. Have you been dreaming of starting your very own podcast in Brooklyn? You can now rent space in 100 Bogart's custom-built podcast room to record interviews, voiceover, and commentary. The room is fitted out with two microphones, mixing board, and a MacBook Pro running Pro Tools. You can rent the space by the hour, and a rental of an hour or more includes a 100 Bogart co-working pass. That means complimentary coffee, tea, and access to your own desk for the rest of the day. So what are you waiting for? Get started on your next audio project. 100 Bogart has the space and amenities you need to kickstart your podcast. Learn more at 100bogart.com or call their team at 718-362-3539. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. I'm Damon Bolte. And I'm Souther Teague. Together we host The Speakeasy, a show where we discuss cocktails, spirits, wine, beer, tea, coffee, and all things in the liquid universe. Yeah, our guests range from bartenders and brewers, alchemists and ambassadors, roasters and regulars, hippies and home brewers, and every expert enthusiast in between. <laughs> Browse episodes of The Speakeasy wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome back to the show. We'll get you to our next interview in just a moment. I do want to remind listeners that if you would be kind enough to review us or even just rate us at Apple's podcast store, we would really appreciate it. It really does help people find the show. It's not just ego. You can also stay up with what we're doing uh, via our Instagram feed. The handle there is at Chef Podcast. That is at Chef Podcast. I'm sitting here with Jeff Gordoner, author of the book Hungry which was just released yesterday. And I, Jeff missed his train, so he's still here to finish up these interviews. Yeah. Jeff. It's good when you get so captivated by the conversation, so swept away that you miss a train. Aww, you can hear the train in the back. Much. Yeah. No, I'm watching your train. You probably could have made it. Well, there's another it's train. It's still over there. It's still over there. But Oh, well. So, so I'm late for lunch. So big deal. So, Jeff, the other restaurant, uh, the other chefs, I should say, that are on this show are Riyadh Nasser and Lee Hansen yeah. of Frenchette. Good guys. Probably, I think it may still occupy this spot. Probably the, the toughest table in town. I know. Oh, yeah. I know Rezzy. I said this to the guys when we were meeting. They didn't know this. But Rezzy you know, has this uh, feature where you can put in a notify. If there's no table available, you can put in notify, meaning if something opens up. And the image that they used in their little Instagram ad for that feature was Resi. I mean, was Frenchette. Oh, yeah. Yeah, as the place that you're not going to get on the first attempt, right? That's interesting. Yeah, I love Frenchette. I, I, I will tell you that um, I got a little shit from people because I didn't include Frenchette in my Escort Best New Restaurants list. 2018. I did include Jorge Riera, the wine director, as yeah. our sort of wine guru yes. of the year, which I think he did deeply, wildly deserved, and he's a wonderful guy. Um, and uh, I, I'm, I'm incredibly fond of the restaurant. Um, I will explain to the extent that anyone wants, but um, it's a national list. I do it, Esquire. I can't have too many New York places. Yeah. Um, that looks parochial. It looks limited. I had incredible French food at Bar Crenn in San Francisco, which I did include, Dominique Crenn's place. I had incredible mm -hmm. food, French food, at Grand Cafe in Minneapolis. 
Chef Jamie Malone. So I was like, okay, I already have two great French restaurants. Mm-hmm. I already have Adamix, Missy, Don Angie, some New York restaurants. At a certain point, anyone who puts the, puts together these lists knows the reality. You you have to leave out some places you like because you want restaurants from all over the country and you want all different kinds of food. Mm-hmm. So you know you don't just want French food. That's very old school and. Um, in spite of my French ancestry, I don't want to <laughs> limit myself to that. Right. So um, it, I was torn, to be honest. I was torn because I, I, I love I it. I can and feel it. I didn't even, yeah, bring, no, you, no, I didn't I, even I, bring this up. I torture myself <laughs> about this stuff, you know. And Mimi Sheraton, well, she gives everyone shit, you know, like 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 literally everyone. So it's fine. But she was like, I can't even read this list if it doesn't include French ad. I was like, all right, whatever. I mean, um, I will tell you as somebody who's eaten quite a bit of French food in his life yeah. that... Bar Cren and Grand Cafe just inched it out by a nose because they're, they're, the food was so exquisite. Yeah. You know, so um, my apologies wow. <laughs> to Riyadh and Lee. I'm wow. only human. Look at you. I'm, I'm, I think it's better to be honest about these things, you know. And also, like, so some people gave me shit because I, you know, I did include Don Angie. I think Don Angie is incredibly creative and fun. We have talked about fun mm-hmm. in this episode. And I seek fun. And yeah. I had everyone I sent to Don Angie has had a blast. Yeah. You have fun at Frenchette too. But, um, you know, so. So don't take their um, absence from your list of that year as as a non-endorsement. Well, like I didn't include Coat the year before. Yeah. You know, and I, I had so many New York places. And now I'm kicking myself. But, you know, like Brett Martin, Jordana Rothman. Uh, Julia Kramer, all of us who do these lists. Kush Bouchoff has been doing it for Thrill List, but I, I think she's she's recently stopped. But, mm-hmm. I mean, all of us who've traveled around the country doing these weird lists can tell you that we have to leave out places we love sometimes because mm-hmm. otherwise the list would be 40 restaurants long. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I'm such an enthusiast as opposed to a critic. And my list last time in Esquire... December 2018 included 20 places. I think ideally my editors would prefer that it were like 12 places. Yeah. It would have more, more impact. I can't right. stop myself. I yeah. lo- When I feel the love, I want to spread the love. <laughs> okay, well, let's spread the love so, about this yeah. restaurant. So, so these guys, yeah. let's set it up. They, they met way back when. They both worked for um, Daniel Baloud. They took uh, their um, traditional French training and were applied it to Balthazar, where they were the original opening chefs. And they were the chefs at Pastis, the original And then they Pastis. opened Pastis, the original yeah. one, yeah. Which is pretty remarkable. And and then they uh, did a bunch of stuff for Keith McNally, the owner of those restaurants, yeah. and and they spent quite a bit of time coming up with what they finally hit on the name Frenchette for, but unlike almost anything they had done before, certainly they had never taken it to this degree, it's funny to be talking to another writer about this, because I we talk about this in the interview, I think they arrived at a place where they had kind of mastered sort of the, a, a classic style and were able to riff within. Yeah. So to create dishes that felt very authentically, very uh, traditionally French, but actually many of them are not. They're, yeah. they're, they're sort of, they're speaking their own patois, right? Yeah. Of, uh, does that make sense? Yeah. I, I mean, I, and I think look, that's I'd what admire, makes it I so cool. I admire anybody my age, and, and Riyadh and Lee are pretty much my age, I, I believe, Ish, or, early yeah, 50s, yeah. right? You know, who, who takes a risk. Yeah, because it comes. You come to that point in life where you think, okay, we're done with risk. I just gotta 
I just got to hunker down now and save money. And and uh, that is a sensible response. I encourage everyone who's listening to do that. Right. But <laughs> for those of us who um, get too restless, um, kind of rolling the dice and taking a risk is something to be admired. When And, 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 and um, you know, Frenchette is an example of that. I think they probably were, I don't know them, so I'm guessing we'll hear what they I have to say. I only know them from eating. I didn't know them till this restaurant. Yeah, I mean... I met Riyadh recently at an Esquire party. He's he's a he's a cool guy. He's a, he's you know I, I I just I I get the sense that they were probably like uh, cranking out the war horses and maybe a little tired of that. Yeah. Maybe ready to do you know one last run for the brass ring sort of like let's let's actually see if we can do what we dream of. Yeah. Um, so I admire that. You know, I think... And, and look, it's it's a classic New York restaurant. It has that spirit of the place you want to be. Um, it feels sexy. It feels, like, energized. It's and, in Tribeca. Yeah. And it does feel like the kind of place you would have, could have wandered into probably when places went a little bit later. You know, like, yeah. like in the 90s, you might have wandered in there at 1 a.m. and it'd be packed. And, yeah. and you would have felt like it. you could have... It's an echo of the Odeon in that way. Yes. And it's an echo of Martin Scorsese's After Hours in a way. Yes. You know? Which right. is a weird movie now because it's all about this character played by Griffin Dunn who's kind of lost downtown right. yeah. at night and can't find his yes. way home. Right. Like, what are we, what, really? Right. Dude, just keep walking. Well, like, or now a, you just break out your iPhone. Now you just, like, he doesn't have an iPhone, <laughs> he can't get a cab, and he meets punk rockers, and it's yeah. scary. It's a yeah. weird movie. Yeah. But, like, it all happens in Tribeca, and he's, like, yeah. lost in Tribeca, yeah, and yeah, it's yeah. scary. Yeah. Like, what a weird thing, but um, but it so, does have that timeless feeling about it. it you, yeah. you could take someone there. Who <laughs> I would don't have, know why I went that way. If there was someone who hadn't been in New York for a long time, it wasn't a quote unquote foodie. You could take them there, and if you wanted to tell, do an experiment, you could probably tell them that place. This place had been there since 1997, oh, yeah. and they'd probably buy it. You know, that's it very feels interesting. Like that. That's very interesting. It yeah. feels timeless in that way. It feels very adult in that way. I think. Yeah, you could um, say like I'm I'm taking you you to one of the New York classics. Yes, it's called French. Yeah, they'd be like, wow. Yeah, you can tell this has been around. <laughs> it has that vibe. Yeah, uh, and as you said, but we, not it, but not with the, the distressed mirrors, red leather no. banquettes, theatricality of Keith McNally. Yeah. Like it has a kind of punk rock austerity to it that's very different. Yes, um, and almost feels underdesigned from a decor standpoint. Yes. Which, uh, like my friend Ian, I remember he said he thought that was cool because it wasn't, like, overdressed. Yeah. Well, and also the name, taking this back to the music piece, comes yeah. from a song by the New York Dolls. I mentioned yeah. David Johansson earlier. I know Maybe you that was a coincidence. There are no coincidences. he was with the New York Dolls, <laughs> and the, the name of the uh, restaurant actually comes from that. Anyway, this is... Uh, this this interview kind of gets it all in. Their backstory, how this restaurant came to be... Um, and uh, it was the longest by far I'd ever spent talking to the two of them. So I hope you enjoy meeting them. Here you go. This is my interview with Lee Hansen and Riyad Nasser recorded at Frenchette Restaurant a few weeks ago. I hope you enjoy it. First of all, thank you both for making the time. I know you don't do this a lot. You don't show up on a lot of podcasts. You don't have to, I guess. Well, we come to the restaurant every day, so. <laughs> well, there is that. <laughs> so, so you're here. <laughs> so we're here. Okay. So, um, well, first of all, perfect, right? Yeah, great. Uh, first of all, can we, I, you know, I want to get the, your stories and the stories of this place, but, you know, I, I'd love to, I always wonder when someone has a hot restaurant, right? Um, 
I mean, you guys have been on fire since you opened. Um, you just got you got the Beard Award for Best New Restaurant. Um, you know, the place is, you you are the image uh, that Resi uses to show that you can put in a um, what are they called a notification request. Have you even seen this? I didn't know that, no. You didn't know this? No. So there's a line from the movie Dumb and Dumber where someone says... Those I, are nicknames, by the way. What's that? Those are nicknames, are they? by the way, yeah. So, so, but there's a line in that movie, which I've actually never seen, but the line is someone says to him, I think it's about a girl, like you have a million to one chance, and he goes, so you're saying there's a chance? And so the Resi ad, have you seen it? Do you no, not know no, this? No. The Resi ad for the fact, you know what the notifications are. Like if some, if there's no table on a Saturday, you can put in a notify. And, and it's a picture of your restaurant. And the caption is, so you're saying there's a chance. Yeah. <laughs> That's a hot restaurant, okay? I don't want to talk about that quite yet. Here's what I want to talk about. How long, it took you guys, a, people were waiting, waiting, waiting. It was like a Stanley Kubrick movie back in the day. Like when, these guys, are, when's it going to be ready? Mm-hmm. How long was it from... You picked you pick the start date from when you signed on the space, from when you broke ground, from like, how long from that to when you got your doors open? I guess it was about a year and, at least a year and a half since we signed the lease on the space. I believe that was in August. Mm-hmm. Year and eight months. What did you think it was going to be when you started that process? We thought it'd be about a year. A year. So maybe, almost... Maybe, maybe 14 months. So it was a good, like, 60%... 40 to 60 percent longer than you thought and 60 percent over budget and Um, what was the i mean you walked in here took me a while to get in because it was like such a mm -hmm. you guys were so busy but like you walked in here and i have to say it just felt like it was worth all that you know i'll use the stanley kubrick example again like when you finally got to see full metal jacket you were like okay I ended, now I get it. Right. But like you walked in, the lighting was perfect. You know, the curtains were perfect. Um, the staff uniforms were perfect. The staff, to be honest, I came in the other night. I don't, I forget her name. I think she's British uh, on the, the, the front of the house. Of waitress? Waitress. Probably Francis. Francis? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Francis. Yeah. yeah, but she, she was our wait. The, from the minute, the first exchange my wife had with her, I told her, I said, you set the tone for our relationship with this restaurant. It was so charming. Yeah. And, and it all just seemed perfect, right? Mm-hmm. But what, can you tell me what those, what those extra months were like? As, you know, this was your first place of your own you guys were doing. There was a lot of attention on it. There was a lot of anticipation and eagerness by the public. But what was it like from behind these doors? Did you, you couldn't have expected what happened. Not at all. No. Yeah, not at all. It was longer than that. I mean, we had a good two years where three years where we were trying to false start a few few different projects. I mean, we were involved in, uh, at the Chelsea Hotel, uh, Uh concepting that. Yeah. uh, F&B-wise. You know, we lost out on a few spaces. Yep. You know, probably, you know, everything in the end is, you know, fortuitous. The spaces Mm -hmm. that we missed out on probably all sort of led, you know, everything kind of leads to a moment. Yeah. And, uh, and I think all our, all our false starts kind of led to to this place yeah and um and then the fall starts that we had and just getting it open led to perhaps um part of the reception that we in part and parcel to the reception that we you know received yeah uh, there i guess there was anticipation we i guess we had no idea that there would be that yeah um that much support really from uh from community yeah peers yeah everybody yeah Uh, how how fast did um 
How long did it take for you to realize that it was going to be as big as it became? Like, was it was it like the the minute like the first week you were open, or like was how how long do you think it took for you to realize you had a hit on your hands? And by the way, you guys, you don't talk. I'm talking like this, so yeah. I you know don't feel compelled to lie. You, yeah, you, you're yeah, very. You're like you're like very like humble we're, about we're, all this. Yeah, I can humble, see yeah, in your yeah, eyes you don't love like me talking this way. Yeah, but like yeah, so but let me just. It is reality, yeah, so no, I'll just no, say it. No, but yeah, that stuff doesn't. Really I'll knock. I mean, and I'll knock wood. We realized. Uh, well, we didn't realize anything. What we noticed was, at the beginning, we were getting a lot of restaurant folks in, and uh, having worked at McNally restaurants where you get a lot of celebrities in, but maybe not as many restaurant folks. Interesting. In uh, we knew we had a very different uh, type of clientele mm-hmm. um, sort of supporting us initially and, yeah. and pretty much going for it. Every night, the, the, I mean, the orders coming in the kitchen, we were like, holy, holy crap. Like just going through the whole, yeah, like going going, through, tearing up the going, whole menu? Going through the Four entire five courses. menu, yeah. you know, every table, going through it, <laughs> which was good because it got our sea legs <laughs> maybe a little bit faster. Trial by, yeah. no yeah, pun intended, trial, but yeah. trial by fire. Yeah. Right, trial by fire. Uh, but also raise the stakes considerably uh, in that, um, you, you know, just put a, another level of pressure on ourselves to, to sort of make it right. Yeah. And Lee's nodding and you, you often with all this. don't realize you have a hit because you're in the middle of doing stuff in the kitchen. Whoops. Okay. Well, that and wasn't, that was supposed to happen. Um, that was, when that's you're okay. in the middle of it's it great. all in the kitchen, you don't always have time to step back and really take in what you've what you've kind of created as a whole in fact it's when you can come out in the dining room and sit in a certain area maybe you're sitting at the end of the bar for a minute after work you know you join your wife for a little cocktail at one of the booths and you kind of you have a, a second to to take a breath and look around and then you kind of say oh yeah this, this place is pretty nice <laughs> but a lot of times you're back there and the fries suck one night and you just don't think you have a hit you think you have a complete disaster yeah yeah well it's interesting what you say about industry coming in right because I remember vividly when Balthazar opened where you guys were and that was a similar thing it was I remember actually New York Magazine did a seating chart remember that yeah. yeah, I think it was the. I don't even think it was the food writers. I think it was the intelligencer, which was yeah, the gossip was. rag at the yeah. front of the book. Yeah. But yeah. they had a seating chart. Like this is where Alfred Portelli sits, and this yeah. is where I forget who it was. But it was like it, it was some celebrities, but it was a lot of industry people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess it's funny. I mean, we all when we opened Balazar, I mean, it was pretty. We were inundated, you mm-hmm. know, at a uh, to a massive degree. Yeah. So, so we never really came up for air. Until about five years later. It's amazing. It seems. It yeah. seems. So a lot of that happened without, uh, we were still just so busy just uh, trying to get it right. Yeah. That uh, we kind of missed it. Yeah. You know, so to speak. Or yeah. Or we just couldn't sort of engage in it in, yes. any, in any kind of way. Yeah. We, we were in it. Uh, maybe maybe to a degree here as well. Yeah. Uh, same same sort of thing. It's just head down, just look at the tickets. Yeah. Make sure it's right. Yeah. Get the team, you know, focused and on the same page. Yes. And figure out also what you want to do. You know, we were, you know, you talk about a year and a half of building a restaurant. You know, there's not a lot of concepting really going on. We were building a restaurant kind of as we went along, you know. How, could, how is that possible? Like, what do you mean? Well, I mean, <laughs> like design-wise, design food-wise. So the bones, all, of, the bones of it were one thing, but the, then the rest of it you were sort of... Yeah, we it was like a it was like a black out. box almost, or like kind a play, of, like we, a sandbox. I, I think we felt that you know we we would get in here, we we would feel it out, and and it would all sort of come together. I mean, it's sort of always how we've always worked. So, how much know? of the home stretch was that kind of? 
This is why I edit. It's okay. Uh, and this, and we got this. We got the siren on the one side of us, and the ice behind they us. Drive right through the window. <laughs> <laughs> it's New York. You know what's funny? When I do interviews in other cities, like I always, there's always a siren at some point, and I, I, I think it's me. I think I. You know when people say like you brought the weather? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I bring like you, the you, sirens. You, yeah, the noise. Yeah, yeah. So, but what I was going to say is how much of the how much like how much of the home stretch was the place was technically maybe you could have opened but you guys were still was no. No, we opened the day we could. Okay. Absolutely. So just for clarity's sake. Yeah, absolutely the day we could. Okay. We got our gas. I think six days later we were open. Okay, so while you construction know, hope, and everything else, we had this yeah, fantasy that we would have gas. One of be the first things that we would yeah. have is a kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> we could actually like get used to being in a kitchen again. Yeah. in a while. Yeah, and and that was the last thing that was, uh, was kind of switched on. Can you explain? This is a very distinctly New York thing. The waiting for the gas to get turned on. Yeah. This is restaurants have been held up for weeks, if not months. months yeah. Can you just explain to listeners who aren't here what that's about? Because it it really is just seems crazy and unnecessary I mean a lot of it is just I mean we're in New York City so it's uh, you deal with Con Ed and you deal with the utilities you can be on a waiting list forever and a lot of times we had some frustrations with the gas where we actually had someone who came in from Con Edison and said okay we want this pipe to go here because we had to get a bigger gas line mm-hmm. uh, we had more equipment than the last restaurant did so we had to get a larger gas line and someone came from Con Ed and was like okay put it here and then two weeks later, someone came and said, no, that's supposed to be over here. It's just little stuff like that. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's construction. It's your it's contractor. It's Sign lining off. a plumber off. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, and you know. And, and there's just, one office processing, you know, pretty much all the claims. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and all the applications. Mm-hmm. And so you're kind of at, uh, you're, you're at the mercy of that speed. Yeah. Um, we were right in the middle of holiday season when we were getting close. Right. Uh, and so you just had, you had pause for... Thanksgiving, you know, a yeah. week shut down over Christmas and New Year's, et cetera, et cetera. But meanwhile, you're like hemorrhaging money, right? I mean, I'm not asking Pretty for much. specifics, but you Pretty have much. to be. You got a staff ready to go and, yeah. and yeah. a space you're paying rent on and have been paying rent on and yeah at that point we were hemorrhaging it pretty pretty badly can can you prepare for that i mean you guys have been through a lot of restaurants we've worked in many places not always as not as owners but you've seen it you know it it's a reality you're familiar with Mm -hmm. does that matter when you're there in the crosshairs of that kind of delay Mm -hmm. does it matter like how much you like are you conditioned for it or do you still or is it still just painful Imagine you were, it probably gets a little better each project you do. I remember, I remember seeing Keith have to go back and ask for money. Keith after, McNally. After every restaurant. Yeah. So there's a level of you can learn some things and figure stuff out, but there's always that surprise that comes up and you're, yeah. or you, or sometimes it's creative. You might all of a sudden decide, hey, we let's get the, this bar top instead of this one. I think yeah. it's going to be better, but it's $20,000 more, but yeah. it has an Got impact. It. So. so before we go back and get kind of the backstory, I just have to ask you, I, I was, this was one of these moments that as someone who's been covering your industry for a long time was just absolutely magic to me. We were on the same flight home by coincidence from the Beard Awards. Um, Lee, am I correct? If, am I remembering? I saw Riyadh up front. I think you were asleep, if I'm not mistaken. I pretty quick on the Yeah, I think so, yeah. you were asleep during boarding. <laughs> Because <laughs> I saw Riyadh, and then I in the further back, I saw you. I went to use the restroom. I saw you. I pretty because I don't think we kn- said hello to each other till I don't remember till we were deplaning. De- yes, exactly. yes. Okay, so it was we were all out that night. You guys got the award. Um, uh, 
Daniel Balud was on the same flight. Yeah. Um, and the funny thing, I don't know if I told either of you this, but I was, we all were in kind of bad shape except for Danielle, who I had seen at 3 a.m. at yeah. the same party we, I was at and sitting in, the, in a banquette with David Kinch and holding court. Yeah. And then as usual, he's there for the plane with like perfect, every, not a wrinkle in his clothes, he's not a hair out of place. He's a vampire. He's a vampire. Pretty much. We get off the plane and I see... Danielle, you guys were about to talk about this, worked for Danielle. I see him standing there with the two of you. It's all hugs and kisses. You know, he was so happy for you guys. And then I ended up walking out of the airport with him. What was that moment like? This was like, I felt so lucky to be able to, I didn't hear anything you guys were saying. I didn't stand there and stare at it, but it was in my way out of the plane. That was magical. Just to see it for, for me was magical. What was that like for you guys? I mean, it was pretty touching. We didn't get to see each other backstage. It was funny. He he announced after us. Yeah, he uh, came on and did a couple of the big ones. He did a couple of awards afterwards. Presented. Yeah, Yeah. so he watched it. And um, I guess he watched it actually on on screen. Yeah. Uh, And and we walk off on one side of the stage. He walks off on the other. So there wasn't like a a high five that that, that Mm -hmm. we could have had. Um, and then at the parties, you don't really get a quiet moment to talk about anything. You know, we, uh, you know, I think we did a couple of shots, took some pictures together, and then just kind of like breezed away. You know, just the way the currents sort of take you. Yeah. Uh, so that next uh, that next morning, when we found when we saw each other all in the same flight. Yeah. Um, you know, we just had a little bit of a pause. Started. He started sending us photos. That, you know that he had taken that night and of the screen and on the, the flight. Yeah, of the announcement okay. and so on and so forth. It was just. It was pretty hilarious. Then it also, it, it sort of impacted us in that uh, how much it also meant to him to have some of his, you know, former cooks, you know, succeed or be recognized to, to that degree. You know, he takes a lot of pride in that. He's very paternal. Oh yeah, big time. Yeah, I was about to say he's like a. Yeah, a, a father to us. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we're always supportive, no matter where which turn we took in our careers. Always yeah. there. Um, he comes visit when he comes to dinner. He comes right in the kitchen, says a little, walks around and shakes everybody's hand. That's the old Paul Bocuse thing. Yeah, yeah. and uh, it's just very warm, and all the cooks just get all. Yeah, this guy's great. I mean, you can see. Yeah, and we try and emulate that as well. It's, it's a yes. personal connection you need to have. Yeah. With yes, staff. Uh, it's an indelible. Uh, you know, impression that he leaves on yeah. people when he when he does that, and yeah. informs them. You know, they those those cooks will, you know, uh, comport themselves exactly the same way. You know, yeah. down down the road, hundred percent. How important that is. You know. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, that to me is the hand that handshake thing. It's like a I say it's a Bocuse thing. That's what he used to go in through the service entrance mm-hmm. and shake all the cooks' hands when he yeah. went to dinner. Yeah. Um, Paul Bocuse. Yeah. But that was like a solidarity thing, yeah, and absolutely. I I do consider the fact that like certain well, you're people a, you're getting I'm sorry to cut you're no please once over at the same time you know when oh Danielle that's honest it, yeah you know, you're getting a, he's looking at you in the eyes you know pretty uh-huh. much he's seeing how sharp they are okay how bright they are interesting you know, uh, yeah he's he's checking you out interesting but that's like a connection to sure like turn it to the past yeah. quite literally yeah. before you two came together at uh, working for DB. Um, can I just get a little a little sketch of your background? Ria, let's do you first. Like, what was your... Where'd you grow up? Yeah, born in New York, grew up in Montreal. Uh-huh. Um, uh, went to culinary school in Montreal. You know, kind of, out of, you know, flunking out of regular school. You know, so... An off-told uh, story. An off-told story, but, you know, an affinity to cooking. Um, From how early? The affinity? It was yeah. always kind of a hobby, right? Uh-huh. It was uh, uh, an interest. 
uh, maybe a passion as well. Yeah. You know, eating, uh, being around food, being around all of that, uh, the table, um, uh, you know, cooking for a bunch of, you know, kids in the neighborhood. You did that? Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, what kind of stuff? Sure. Anything from boiling lobsters to spaghetti. For sauce. your buds? All my buds, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, at a young age. And then somebody, you know, like, this was, you know, floundering in school, said, you know, you should just cook. Yeah. And I said, yeah, I think that's a great idea, you know, so I started cooking, you know, okay. kind of professionally. Can I ask, you mentioned the table, like, for your family, was food a big thing? Culturally, it was. Um, what's your family, What's the background no, family, for your family? Family is a total mess. You know, completely <laughs> fractured. Uh, you know, family. You know, you know. Sorry. You know, no. It's 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 also probably a pretty common story. Yes. You come from a like a you know broken home, divorced. Yeah. Whatever. Uh, Restaurants fill a lot of voids for people who work in completely. them. Completely, it gives yeah. you structure. It gives you you know that paternal, maternal. All of that stuff is fed in there, you know, some sort of normalcy yeah. in a restaurant, yeah. you know, a weekly paycheck, you know, uh, well, and a also, family meal at a certain time. Well, what's it know, called again? Siblings. Family meal. Yeah, yeah, sure. It's not, people yeah. don't refer to it. I mean, they yeah. sometimes do, but it's more called family meal than staff meal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, can, so culturally, your back, what, was your, what were your parents' uh, backgrounds? My father Lebanese, my mom from Trinidad. Okay. Yeah, so. And were both of those honored in some way in the way you ate as a kid? Both, yeah. Both. Equally. Equally. Yeah, yeah, Interesting. Yeah. Did you ever do mashups when you cooked? Like, would I you know, ever combine? I wouldn't say combine, but, uh, you know, spice, mm-hmm. you know, uh, fresh ingredients mm-hmm. as a Mediterranean influence, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and hotter spices, you yeah. know, and uh, those types of flavors, those West Indian flavors. Yeah. Bit, yeah. What are the dishes that loom large for you? Not necessarily in importance to either of those cultures, but like as a kid, just favorite stuff. Favorite stuff? Oh, roti night when my mom would make uh, roti yeah, night. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Yeah, make roti. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. And then um, you know, I don't know, lahmacun uh, when my father would bring you okay know, <laughs> Lebanese pizzas. We'd yeah. call bring a stack home. Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, those are those are big. Uh, those are positive. And then, how did you go about pursuing it? Uh, I started working in a little cafe, uh, and you know, I, I grew up in Montreal, it's a sub- suburb of Montreal. Yeah. Started working in a little cafe there. It was basically a fondue cafe. Yeah. And uh, enrolled in new uh, culinary school, you know, in Montreal after that. Okay. For a couple of years of that, kind of, you know, sort of rebelled against that structure. What structure? The classroom structure? Back to, classroom. here we are in class yeah, back, again? Yeah, back, back in class. Okay. Didn't, didn't really care for that too much. So, but you like to cook. But I like to cook, and uh, you started doing stages. You know, once yeah. I got the taste of a real restaurant, uh-huh. I figured. Uh, and having been born in the United States and in New York, I figured I'd just move here and start working my way through restaurants here. Yeah. So, what were some of the places you worked earliest? Uh, first, well, one of the first places I tried to get into was Le Cirque at that time. Okay. You and know, it's original place. Past Lee uh, that that morning. Okay. Um, you know, we we were kind of cooking at about the same time, so I think. Yeah. Although we never really uh, we didn't know each other, I'm sure you know we both interviewed at. Um, Lutes. And uh, well, I inter- interviewed at Lutes, but we interviewed at um, at David Walton's place at Chanterelle. Chanterelle. Yeah, yeah. I didn't get the gig. I didn't have enough experience. You know, uh, but Le Cirque was one of the places. Lagrimi, that, did you did you knock that door too? No, I didn't knock. I knocked at the door at um, at uh, uh, Caravelle. So French. Yeah, it was French. Yeah, For all this stuff that... What year are we talking, roughly? 80-something. Okay. Late 80s. So for all the American stuff that was going down, right, you were still gravitating toward the classic... 
Yeah, that's the hierarchy. That's the mm-hmm. that's the classic. That's yeah. I mean, it was still very much revered, right? Oh, I don't mean yeah, it as yeah, a controversial no, 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 question. No, I just all. mean no, a lot of young people at that time were trying. Well, even Chanterelle leaned French, but you know, might have been trying to go to Gotham, or might have been trying to go to Oriole, or you you didn't list any of those places. Again, I'm not being controversial. I'm just trying to yeah. get a sense of your mindset. No, I was French. You weren't seduced by all that. Not at all. Yeah, yeah. that's all I meant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not yeah. At all. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah sure. Okay. Sure. And I, no Did you look down on it? No, I'm just kidding. No, no, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Okay, I wasn't still kidding. Do, still do. Uh, no. Uh, so jams wasn't on your list. <laughs> I hated jams. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And Hubert's so, and Raquel, all those places all the, were, uh, you know, I, I managed to, yeah. you know, touch them at some point, yeah. encounter them. So the first jobs were where? Uh, so... Wound up at uh, Adrienne, which was in uh, Hotel Maxime's. Mm-hmm. The chef was Jean-Michel Dio. And it was like I kept being kicked over there by the other French chefs. Mm. You know, so, you know, Sylvain Porte said, you should go there. Mm. You know, he's, you know, Jacques Chibois was the uh, executive chef or the uh, consulting chef. Yeah. So he had that Mediterranean sort of influence on the food. It, yes. You know, uh, it gravitated to my sensibilities mm-hmm. at that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, yeah, Garmanger there. Yeah. Okay. Rocco and Despirito was also one of the comies there. Rocco was there? Yeah, sure. Oh, wow. Okay. It's funny. I heard, no, I say that Rocco did my wedding. That's how close I am to Rocco. Nice. I hear he was like a Tasmanian devil in his early days, at least in cooking school, that he was super intense. We got our asses kicked pretty hard at that restaurant. So you had to be like that. You kind of had to be that, yeah. that way, but you also had to keep your mouth shut, you know? Right. And just kind of suck it up. Okay. Lee, how about you? Where'd you where, where'd you grow up? Uh, born and raised here in New York City. Yeah. Um, what kind of kid were you? What kind of what? Kid. Kid. I was a. Um, hmm. Definitely, food was not on my radar as a kid. Uh, moved around a lot. Uh, just me and my mom growing up. So mm-hmm. lived on Long Island a couple of years. Back to the city, different areas of the city. Moved out west for a few years. How far west? Uh, California, Oregon, and California. Northern. Uh, California. Uh, Passing the southern. Okay. So that is where I kind of got sick of making friends at school and going from New York to California where there's like a school of 3,000 in your high school. You're just like, whoa, you're taken back there. So my mom was managing a restaurant uh-huh. in, the, in uh, Pasadena. So I just hung out there yeah. and uh, started, I was 14 at the time, so you know, started doing prep work and just really got into the energy of the kitchen and its kind of craziness bought onto the drug and, um, you know, worked pizza station. When I was 16, I was doing the saute station. Mm-hmm. Did you so, take uh, to it very... It sounds like you started doing it almost just to have something to do while you were hanging around waiting for mom off, to go home. It started off like that. And yeah. I just, I just got right pulled in. right in. Did you show a natural aptitude for it when you started? Like, did you pick things up quickly? So. yes. Yeah. Okay. I remember one time um, I was helping... Uh, garnish some plates, right? So it's like this family Italian place. So you're picking up 15 plates at yeah. once, and veal piccatas and Parmesan, yeah. and that kind of stuff. <laughs> and there was one time where I took parsley and one, and everything got parsley and Parmesan cheese on it, basically as as, as a final thing to go out. <laughs> and I grabbed like uh, parsley on one side of the hand and, and cheese on the other, and I kind of did this. Okay, so you're pantomiming. <laughs> it was almost you're pantomiming sort of a two sided shaker right, right. almost. And yeah. The chef was like, "Whoa, check out Lee!" You know. <laughs> so like, and that just came to you. So I had yes, I had this kind of uh, interesting just, just navigating that scenery. Did you have other stuff that involved that kind of dexterity in your life? Like, did you play guitar no, or were you no, an athlete or not at all? Not at all. Mm-mm. Interesting. 
innate. This was this was and you're grinning like I said you. Yeah, I think so. But anyway, we came back. Miss New York came back to New York after high school. Actually, one more year left in high school. Yeah. and then I went right to culinary school, CIA, up in High Park mm-hmm. upon graduation of high school. Roughly what year? That was 84. Of gra- no, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, graduated high school at 84, went around 85, then so graduated was, culinary school at 87. Was yeah, it ex- was, exciting to be there when you were there? Yeah, very exciting. It was pretty. And back then, I mean, I was right out of high school, so I was 18, 19 going there. And the culinary school attracted people from, you know, all walks of life, all yeah. ages. I was going to school with you know men and women in their 30s so career what we would yeah we didn't have the term but career change career changers yeah so uh yeah very very exciting i knew i was like okay i'm this is serious and and uh it was an exciting place as far as you know you you had different classes every two two three weeks so you were getting shuffled through you were seeing everything from butchering to Mm -hmm. Nutrition, and then going through all the different skills and working at restaurants. There was an Italian, a French, an American. Um, and then I did my I had done my externship at uh, Twenty One Club. So you leave CIA and you go for six months, do an apprenticeship, and you come back and finish school. Upon graduation, Danielle had just taken over Le Cirque, so I was getting like about a month or two from graduating. Yeah, he just came into Le Cirque from Plaza Tene. And he was going through some of these old um, resumes that he had, and he picked mine out as one of the few. And I got a call up at CIA, like, hey, you're still looking for a... <laughs> so that's one of my fond memories. Wait, from like, Danielle? Yeah, yeah. It's oh like answering gosh. the payphone back when, you know, payphones were in. Yeah. In my dorm. And just like, yeah, man, I'll be there in a month. How much and, did uh, you know about him, if anything? Did you know the restaurant, or did you know him? I knew Le Cirque. Yeah. I didn't know so much at the time about Plaza Tene or his background. Okay. Um, so you go in there right when he takes over. Yeah. Okay. Can we can we set this up a little bit? This was a big moment in that restaurant. For Alon sure. Sayak had sure. been the chef. And he was still there, so it was interesting. You had the two teams uh, overlapping a little bit. Yeah. Uh, Sayak was there to kind of help the transition. Some of his old staff was there, but they were being traded in, so to speak, for yeah. uh, a newer brigade. And um, Sota Kuhn was there. Mm-hmm. Part of on was his, those were his two sous chefs. So super exciting, and I was like jumping into, I mean, culinary school could not prepare me for that. That was kind of a fraught moment in the history of that restaurant because it was a big deal that Danielle was coming in, and Danielle took the food in a in a more kind of it's still French, obviously, right. but you know comes in and with these like dishes that are still legendary, like the the bass, mm-hmm. the potato the potato wrap yeah, bass, yeah. Yep. right with the to see bass, yes. And the bow tie scallop? Was it a scallop? No. What was the bow tie? That was with, um, oh, yes, correct, the rosas. The rosas of, uh, well, there was two. There was like this rosas of scallops that was kind of seared and and placed over the pasta. Yes. And then there was a black tie, which had the um, layered uh, layered with truffles wrapped Uh in the pastry. But he came in basically with dishes that were like, it, it, a lot of people say you can't design a signature dish, but he kind of could. Like, he came in with dishes that were just built to become famous. Indeed. Did you feel that as a cook there? No, I just wanted to, I just had to set my station up. Okay. <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't going too deep in the uh, thought pattern. So what was it like? Tell me. Tell me, what was the indoctrination like? Um, I mean, very, very exciting. Um, just to see, and it was interesting, because Daniel brought, obviously, his his menu to the place but you also had to keep like there was a segment of Le Cirque that had to stay Le Cirque as far as the lobster salads 
and the uh, broiled flounders and the chicken diables. These things had to stay on the menu from the old menu because he had so many regulars that had to have that stuff, the Niswa salad. So there was a very nice blend of old and new there, and, um, and it worked really well. Like, the hot app station was also where the pasta primavera was was made. That was another one of the that was a, well. That was a Alan Alan Sayak yeah. classic. Yeah, well, probably even before that. I think that was just because, I mean, it's one of Sirio's things that he, he always yeah had on the menu. yeah. And uh, but the captains would have to prepare that. So uh, as a hot app cook, you had to get everything ready, like all the vegetables and you yeah. the pasta and everything yeah. ready. Yeah. And the waiters would come back and, and cook it. So if, when you're on the hot app station, which was in the back a little bit. The waiter would come in in his white coat, and he'd get the, get the, the copper bimetals and start cooking up the uh, the peas and the, and the cream and everything, and go out there and serve it. So you had this 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 um, two worlds colliding. It was yes, pretty cool. That's cool. How cr- you said it was like you know nothing prepared you. For, like what was the, what was the in terms of the demands on you as a cook and the and of of the brigade there? What was it like when you just think about it? How do, how do you picture it in your mind's eye? I mean, it was overwhelming in a in a loved it way. Like I mm-hmm. was eating it up every day. Mm-hmm. Um, as someone who always just loved being in the kitchen and loved loved that energy, um, that was like a next step. And it was you soaked it up. Soaked it up, and we had a you know we talk about it here a lot. Your first team that you work with, and that was an open. It was not an opening a restaurant, but it was a. Um, a, a rebirth of sorts with the new chef coming in. So that first team you always kind of bond with. Yeah. And um, uh, it was just, it was, and you know, and you had the private dining room over there. So there's all kinds of stuff going on all yeah. the time. Yeah. And um, Daniel's energy was it's incredible, as you mentioned before, how he can just we're <laughs> keep like, going. We're no decades what. on, and he's like the same guy. You know, if you if you ever see him at an after hours thing or something, he still jumps up on oh, the yeah. banquettes yeah. and like yeah. the whole thing. He the walls with the champagne. Yeah. It's crazy. It's full life. So, where do you guys? How do you guys? Where do you guys? How and when do you guys first meet? Um, we met at when Danielle opened his own place. Yeah, ninety three. Ninety three. Uh huh. Yeah. So, yeah, I worked at a couple more places, and then I always said, "Hey, you need me when you open your own place?" Because he always said, "Like, I'll do my own place one day. You come with me." <laughs> and uh, so, all right, let me know. So uh, it was ninety ninety three. Yeah. And that's where or, I was it ninety three. I think it was, been, was, it 90, was it 92? Okay. April. April 93. Okay. Okay. I met Danielle. I was in France. I was working at Michel Bra. Yeah. And uh, Danielle came that summer. I, you know, I was up in the mountains, so I had no, like, access to news. Yes. But, uh, of course, I, I knew who Danielle was, and, you know, he was legendary. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I remember that night, um, Michel announces that, you know, oh, Big chef from New York is coming in for dinner tonight. It's Danielle Balut, so you know, I got pretty excited about it. Yeah. And um, after the meal, I guess somebody had mentioned that there was like an American or a New Yorker in the kitchen, and um, so Danielle said I wanted to meet him. He, or he wanted to meet you know the cook, the young cook who was in the middle of nowhere, basically staging at this you know wow crazy restaurant. And I uh, met Danielle, and I asked him how things were at La Cirque. He said, Oh, I left La Cirque. I'm opening a restaurant. When you come back to New York, come see me. So that's that's so I got back to New York with the intention of actually moving, going back to France the following season mm-hmm. for another year with Michelle. But um, yeah, Danielle said, "No, you're going to come and work for me," and I said, "Okay, yeah." Wow. And then, and then we met there, 
Did you at all at that time, you know, it's so it's so in the rearview mirror now, but you, this is all not very far removed from a time. Actually, when you guys started, it was still kind of the case. Like, there was a lot of, a lot of tension between young American cooks and older French, the established old French guard, even in New York. Um, Americans were largely looked down on. There were a lot of kitchens who wouldn't take Americans, French kitchens. If you went over to France, you got treated pretty poorly in most cases. Um... You know, I've always thought Danielle was one of the people who really changed, started to change that. He had a real affinity for young Americans and for this country, it seemed like. And I also feel like the late uh, Jean-Louis Paladin was someone who was kind of similar. But did you guys feel that at the time? Does that seem like an accurate statement even? What's your take on that? I think that um, if you had the chops and to, to keep your head above the water and be a good cook, it didn't matter where you came from. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that for the French chefs, they felt more comfortable having French cooks with them. And they, they would, and it's also cheap labor. They would bring them, you know, they would come and work 18 months from, yeah. from France. And it was, that was one maybe reason there was more French cooks. Yeah. But uh, Well, the other thing that... It's a language thing. And it's, I was just going to say, it took, took like 300 interviews before somebody said this to me. But Bill Yassa said to me at one point, like, well, you know, those guys did speak the same language. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, it it does easy. make life a little easier. Yeah, like, you know, easier. you can ascribe all this other stuff yeah. to it. But like... I mean, that's yeah. how I got along. I mean, I spoke French. You did? I mean, I, yeah. How helpful was that? Enormously, yeah. yeah. Enormously. Definitely a leg up. Yeah. French. Uh-huh. Uh, you just, uh, they would react to you in French. You know, chefs would react to you in French. And yeah. You could react back. Yes. Uh, and it's more instinctive in some ways. Mm-hmm. But Danielle was a very integrated kitchen. You know, Alex Lee was the chef de cuisine. Yeah. You know, uh, his sous chefs were, you know, Lee and uh, another and Philippe Bertino, mm-hmm. so one French sous chef. You know, mm-hmm. chef de parties were all brought over mostly from mm-hmm. from France, and it was really for that for that reason, economics, I think, mm-hmm. and also to have that shorthand. You know, he was pulling people that had worked in Michelin three star restaurants. Yeah. You know, and were chef de parties there. Yeah, you know, that wanted an experience in America, so he brought them over. So mm-hmm. he was bringing over like, you know, really talented people. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I got in there as well, probably, and considered as a chef de partie because of the French experience, mm-hmm. you know, having been in, uh, at, at, at Mich- you know, at, in Laguiole and uh, having spoken the language. Sure. It was so, part of a barrier. And what was that? What was it like there at the in the early days? At, in that restaurant? At, and, yeah. It's like Lee. I mean, it, it, it never changes. You're just trying to keep... Yeah. <laughs> so the walls change. It's like one unbroken line changes. from it's, then it's to just, now. Yeah, pretty much. It's like. Does it uh, feel that way? Does you don't, do you ever feel like you're water focus? Like you know, get it. You know, get set up. <laughs> you know. Do you ever do like time travel in your mind when you're in a kitchen? Like, do you ever? Can you be here and it almost feels like you're still there in some like? Does it ever feel like that? Those, I, those memories resonate in you. They do. Yeah, you can, yeah. Or certain cool. tasks no that problem. maybe take you right back to yeah. your stuff you did when you were on on the line. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So, how does tell me how Balthazar comes about? We had been at Danielle four years, you know, essentially. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, we had been talking probably the last two years about doing, you know, hey, let's go do a restaurant together. Let's open a restaurant together. We're going to open a restaurant. It's just going to be us two, and we'll do what we want to do. And, uh, <laughs> and um, were you guys fast friends? Yeah, we're yeah. good friends then. Yeah. No, but I mean, did it happen quickly? In that kitchen? Yeah, I would say yeah, pretty much. What, what was the glue? Coffee was our gateway drug. To that the was the glue? Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, there were a lot of people there. I'm just wondering what it was about you two that, like, pretty tight you gravitated group. to each that other. It was a pretty tight group to begin with. A small kitchen. Like, you go to uh, Danielle now, and there's 20 people in the kitchen. Back then, there was eight. Well, a lot of people don't know this. That was in what is now Cafe Balud, yeah. which when you go to the current Danielle, it's almost hard to... It's, it's, it's a different... Sir, yeah. It's two different restaurants. Completely. Yeah. There, you know, we weren't initially open for, for, for lunch there, right. right? And so you're right. I mean, it was eight people in the kitchen and maybe wow. a few commis. Yeah. Small. To do what we were doing there was pretty... Yeah. pretty out of control. Yeah. So it was a tight, it was a tight group. Okay. Um, and and we became friends. Yeah, Got it. Yeah, through hockey, that's you know pretty much right away. Uh, and uh, so we had this dream, like every everybody does, to do yeah. a restaurant. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think we both left kind of thinking we would be able to open a restaurant. Of course, we couldn't. We didn't know anybody. Didn't so know how to do had, it. We had like a little plan. <laughs> had you had a business plan? We had a little business plan, and we looked at some spaces all around. What Balthazar. was the business plan for? So funny. Just for like a small... Like, like a bistro? It was written in place, crayon. Yeah. Okay. No. <laughs> Practically. <laughs> it, was in, it was in pencil. Yeah. I mean, no, it was? No. Yeah, pretty much. It was pathetic. Yeah. But it, it was a plan. Yeah. There were any financials. Do you remember what it was, it was called? Mostly, no, no, I don't no know. We didn't, no, except no. like we want to do some good food. Yeah, <laughs> we want to do a bistro, uh, bistro-ish. We wanted yeah. to do a casual restaurant where, yeah. you know, we kind of on our terms, you know, cook mm-hmm. the way we want to cook, you know, and and so on and so forth. Kind of like uh, anti Danielle in a way, but very much Danielle in a way. We're in the, you know, I feel like. I mean, I feel like this place is like the epitome of a certain, or I don't know, maybe epitome is not even the right word, like the ultimate expression of a certain thing that has existed for a long time, which is the New York French Bistro. Right. Right? This is a thing that has existed to various degrees of sophistication and success. Like, I used to work uh, at 920 Broadway, which is between 20th and 21st, and L'Express was around the corner. That's still there. Mm-hmm. That place has been there for decades. Yeah. There was French roast, you know, yeah. like, and then there were places that were much more kind of authentic and, you know, really, you know, yeah. it didn't feel like someone had gone down to the poster mart and bought, you know, some oversized, like, right. you know, uh, spirits posters and threw them on, you know, like, it, right, right. and there was a real chef in the back, right? And, but Balthazar, well, how did it? How did the? First of all, what was the notion of co-chefing like? Because this has become a more common thing now. This wasn't that common back when you guys were going around with your original business plan, was it? No, but I mean, we were also looking to do our own place, and and uh, you know we, uh, you know, through a friend, uh, met Keith, who was uh, opening a restaurant. Yes. And looking for a chef, he wasn't yeah. looking for two chefs. Yeah. Um, well, nobody. Yeah. Uh, you know. Passed along my information, got a phone call pretty much right away from him. From from him, which was surprising, mm-hmm. you know. Um, did a tasting, uh, got you know, got the job, and said, "Well, you got to meet my partner Lee." And he said, "What do you mean, partner Lee?" And I said, "Well, yeah, it was two of us." <laughs> and he said, "Well, I need to meet him." And I said, well, "Of course." And passed yeah. on the information. Same thing. Yeah. Phone call the next day. Lee yeah. did a tasting. You know, he came around to the idea that, uh, you know, two chefs would be better than one. Um, you know, and certainly when we saw the scale of that place, I think we realized, I mean, we also knew, I mean, uh, the, you know, for a place that big, two would be better. Did you guys individually, in order to stay with this vision of working together and being co-chefs in someone else's restaurant, did you have to take a, a hit in your salary at the, at the outset 
to have that? Because he was looking for one chef. Do you I, mind answering that? I mean, probably not at all. I think he took the hit. You, you know, think? Because, well, yeah, maybe yeah. we could have gotten more as one chef, but, um, you know, he took the hit. And, and I, You guys and, were paid an amount that people, made you happy. It made us, yeah. You uh, didn't feel like you were at all, no, yeah, okay, no. that's, that's, so that's honorable. Yeah. Okay. And can you just speak about that restaurant? Because when that place opened, I honestly don't think New York City, I, I don't know if the United States had ever seen anything like that. First of all, the design, to, what was to me brilliant about it was you walked in there on day one, it looked like it had been there for 100 years. Yeah, I mean, it was brilliant. Yeah, he's talented with that. Yeah. What was it like watching that thing come together? Was it daunting? Pretty much so. I mean, yeah. I mean, I remember when we met him, he had this photograph that he'd carry around with him of this giant bar like an old black and white photograph it's gonna be the bar <laughs> sure enough that's what <laughs> it was built yeah and um but just the craftsmanship and everyone who was working on the place because we were there for a good six months while it was being built yeah and uh pretty like it was no corners were cut and everything yeah. was it was all mahogany and, and things that attention to detail was said yeah. it looks like it's been there for a while because it was yeah it was, it was built that way, yeah. And how did you two go about, I mean, I guess the idea, the thing that always blows my mind when people do it successfully together, like I just interviewed Claire and Jess at King mm-hmm. here in New York, right? When, or And I did a book with the Battersby guys, you know? Mm-hmm. And a lot of times these people come up, actually both of those teams I just named, come up in, in the same restaurant, so they have a similar sort of culinary DNA, which gives you a common language, mm-hmm. but you're still individuals, right? Mm-hmm. And you still have your own taste. Um, I would imagine for you guys, the fact that you, at least more so then than I think here, you kind of stayed fair, you know, pretty close to traditional French food, probably eased you two into collaborating. Is that, is that accurate? Like, did you, have a, did you have sort of a synchronicity pretty much early on? I think we did. Yeah, I, I would say we did. And, and we built, I mean, we designed that, we did that menu... It was basically our take on what that food should be. In Meaning that space. what? When you say should be, what like what? I mean, it should be. There should be like a traditional. I mean, a very strong traditional influence. Mm-hmm. You know, but like you, you, you mentioned New York Bistro. Yeah. I mean, it was a New York brasserie. Yeah. New York French brasserie. Yeah. You know, very French at the roots, but still, you know, uh, yeah, only that you could see here. You know, it's a, right. New York. There was a certain cosmopolitan you know, uh, clientele that we're catering to. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think we understood that and we um, created dishes or designed dishes to appeal to those, to that. Like, what would, what would kind of, what would kind of be a good example of what you're talking about? Goat cheese tart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> goat cheese tart with caramelized onions. Uh-huh. You, know, you can, it, it, you can reference, you know, a goat cheese tart way back. Yeah. But, you know, it, it you know, Getting one of those flashbacks. Yeah, something, something like that. Well, the, the, uh, yeah. the, the, the presence yeah. of goat cheese in the in New York City at that time is hard to over... If you weren't there, you can't understand you know, it. <laughs> I don't know. Nobody, nobody... You don't see it anymore, right? Nobody cooks goat Not cheese. Not like that. It was yeah, everywhere. There was the goat cheese salad with beets and walnuts. Yeah, like, that yeah, was like yeah, that yeah. was everywhere. We've yet to put a beet salad on the menu here. Uh, is that right? Yeah, kind of. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but what? Well, how, talk to me about the, the, the I, I don't speak French, but the fruit de mer. Yeah. 
that that talk to me about the the what it took to put, even have some. That's just one well, piece the, of what you guys did. That was the anchor. It, it involves no heat, it, right? It, no, no cooking. But like, can you talk to me well, about that, the production that that, was, that, that required? Well, that, yeah, that was the so, anchor. That we, we figured that would be a that would be a strong um, focal point of the menu. Okay. And and also the real traditional tie tie in. Okay. Is to have a plateau de Friedmer. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And so. That, yeah, that's what we did. We did the Lobatazar and the uh, right. Land. Yeah, but what did it take? What did it take? What did it take to do that from a like, sourcing and from a staffing as far as standpoint? That station goes. It was like probably like eight people in that station alone, which just shucking things small, and plating things. And restaurant kitchen. Yeah. That's their whole staff. But for yeah. us, that was um, just the uh, yeah. There was um, most of the uh, prep work was done in the mornings. Yes, seafood would come in. The crabs, the lobsters would get cooked. Yes, uh, tons of oysters. Yeah, uh, we often had like. Eight, eight ten different yeah. kinds. Uh, but it took a lot of heat off the kitchen. I mean, you have that team out there, as far as the apps are, you know, get inundated with This was the with thing tickets. I was going to ask you, right. It just, like, releases some... Because you have some stuff that doesn't, that you just put the ice in, plate it up, exactly. get it, it, like, yeah. bought you some time. Yeah. And when that team gets seasoned, I mean, there was those... Those oyster chefs were uh, <laughs> were fast. You know, something, to watch. something to watch. Looks like fast motion. And just the Balthazar platters, like just watching those go through the dining room was yeah. was great. And you would usually get if one would go through the dining room, you would probably get an order for two or three right after that, just because of the visual sales of that. Yeah, that restaurant's kind of it was. I just it was so amazing going there for the first time because it was just that the lighting. Funny, there's a bartender. He's not here right now, but he was one of the runners at Balthazar when we first. Oh, opened. really? He's one of the only guys who can carry the whole three tiers in his hand. Okay. You mean one? If he was here right now, we could turn around and yeah. have him well, shout him out. He weighs 50 pounds, and he would carry it like, wow. like, a, <laughs> like a piece of cake. What about the bakery? Balthazar Baked. Did that open mm. simultaneously? Yeah, yeah, down in the basement. Yeah. Under, under Balthazar. And the, the storefront next door, that opened, yeah. they opened the at the same time. There was no pause or no ramp up. No. Yeah, so that was a whole other thing. Yep. Yeah. And I, I, for people who aren't in New York, so right next door to Balthazar... To the entrance of Balthazar is the Balthazar Bakery. It's tiny. Mm-hmm. The the display is just packed mm-hmm. with breads and and pastry, and they'll make a you can get a coffee or right. And and when that first oh, I used to live at the corner of Bleecker and Broadway when Balthazar opened, and I, my wife and I were dating at the time. And I, on the weekend, I used to walk down and get like a selection of stuff from the bakery and come back home. It was great. It's great, but that was like a whole other thing. Well, I thought that's pretty brilliant of Keith, actually. I mean, you had this really grounding um, entity right next to the restaurant. So as glitzy as Balthazar could have been with the clientele, you had still just bread and coffee and pastries, something yes. really grounding yeah. next to it that, 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 that gave the whole package a really legitimate uh, air. Yeah. yeah, big time. Yeah, big yeah. time. Yeah, it was very smart. Yeah. So you, t- what are s- you 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 have some other stops along the way in the within the McNally universe? You guys, uh, I guess, Minetta Tavern. Pasties opened after that, mm-hmm. and, then, uh, and then Schiller's, and then we opened Minetta. Minetta yeah, was, yeah. Yeah. We, yeah, we were legitimate partners at, at Minetta. Yeah. What do you mean legitimate partner? Oh, you were. Yeah, partner. Oh, okay, yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, what was opening Minetta? That was another one. That well, that was sort of, that was like a found. Like he didn't have to create that from it. scratch. Yeah. That was a space. But that was also the goal. We were. Um, it was probably a bit of a gap between Schiller's and when Manetta opened, and the restaurants were costing so much money to uh, put together. Then we're like, well, let's look for a place that's 
existing and just kind of. Well, we don't have to build the stage shake, set. Shake we the can. Rug out it's a like bit right instead of going. a stage set, it was like a movie set where you just. It's a location. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we're just looking on online. We found it and uh, wow. brought it to Keith and I was like, "Yeah, let's do let's do this." And what was it like working? Was, was he? What's he like? I've never met Keith McNally. I've tried. I desperately <laughs> wanted to interview him for my book. Desperately, a name you guys don't know the name. Most people out there won't know it. But Arnold Rossman. Oh sure. sure. Yeah. Who I'm friendly with. Tried. Tried. He tried. Arnold, you tried. Tried. Thank you. He tried. <laughs> I'm sure he did. Yeah. <laughs> Arnold does. And that. so did Keith's, uh, I only knew her by email, but Keith's ex-wife, Lynn, mm -hmm. who was one of the original Odeon partners, sure. she tried, but I couldn't get him. Couldn't get him. I think he was very wary of the press at that by that time. But um, what was he like? Just what's he like? What's he like sitting at a table like this having a, like a, a, you know, a creative meeting with? Is he a big personality behind closed doors? Is he... Big, but, but uh, you know, he... Like, um, he's both shy and, and confident, and confident, confident and boisterous at the same time. Yeah. Like, no, very secure in his instincts. Yeah, yeah. Well, his instincts are really strong. It's amazing. Uh, spot on. Yeah, um, for the most part. But How does he interact on the food? Does he kind of just leave it to his chefs? To us mostly, yeah. Yeah, he, he did. He did to us. I, I don't think he had the skill set to, you know, he definitely had taste. To tinker, to, yeah. But he didn't have the skill set to, to, to tinker with it. And recognize and, that. Yeah and, yeah, and I think part of, I think it was certainly intimidating having two chefs. You, had, <laughs> you, you couldn't, if you broke down one, yeah, there's still another one to break down. Right. You could, you could, the other one could tag in. And it, was hard, it was hard to do. And we were always extremely unified yeah. uh, ab about it all. So, yes. So, I, you know, I'm sure that was a bit intimidating to... What was the degree of your, the synchronicity between you guys across these various concepts you're describing? Was, was it pretty harmonious? I mean, were concepts you... Concepts with Keith? No, with you two, between you two, with the menus, with the food. Like, do you guys tend to no, kind of see eye to really, eye most of the time? It's always been like a, a very comforting zone for us. Um, we usually see eye to eye. Um, actually, I think when we, you know, we... Just due to the necessities, you'll have to go and uh, whatever, write some menu stuff down on your own here and there. But I feel our collaborations are, are probably the, the more fun dishes. Um, but we've always had ease and comfort in doing that, and there's no showmanship. And you can always get when, like, when you're trying to come up with a dish, and sometimes you just need to offer like a little one more ingredient. And right. sometimes there's more collaboration needed. But you can kind of tell we we. You're good editors for each other. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. We work. We work. We work well together. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, yeah. That's great. So there's not. Right, there's no, no. Quibbling about it. Yeah. You know? It's it's really. It's very natural. So okay, can we do the anatomy of Frenchette? First of all, what? How would you describe the the concept as you saw it when you started putting it together? I'm going to imagine you're going to have this answer is going to be incredibly simple. Uh, yeah, you'll probably be disappointed. Uh, <laughs> I think we actually we were it's probably quite maddening to most people that we were trying to. What was it explain. like? We want to do our food in a cool space. So what do you want? Yeah. What do you want it to look like? And it was just like, well, we like this and this and this and this and maybe a, a little bit of this. So we couldn't quite uh, um, um, articulate our, our our vision, but. People just kind of knew it, and we got together with our design team, and 
they're friends of ours, so that was easy and organic. And uh, was that it, was it explainable? I, and gonna, go I'm ahead, gonna, go I'm ahead. Disagree a, l- a little bit. I think I think we we had a goal of producing a a product, you know, sort of a delicious product, you know, very much the way we wanted to do. Yeah, you know, you know in our, in in our, but I, I think we also wanted to get out of a consciously stay out of a comfort zone, you know, in a way. Uh-huh. Not or not say comfort zone uh, because we we relied on experience for a lot of this menu. But, yeah, um, we also didn't want to just retread the same old same old ground. You know, mm-hmm. we didn't want to do Balthazar in a different space. You know, and when we interface with our you know with the with the design team who are friends of ours, you know, these are Brooklyn guys. And we didn't want to do a Brooklyn restaurant. Yeah. And and we didn't want to do a Balthazar. So we both, we as a group, kind of like pushed each other out of out of that zone. It so seems the place doesn't look like that restaurant, and it doesn't look like a recreation of a traditional French bistro. You know, it looks like what it does. It still has a vintage quality to it. Yeah. You know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I, same with the food. You know, if, it, it all if, followed suit. If I were to put it in writerly terms, I feel like you guys found your voice, right? Like, yeah. you, you were writing in a certain style, and then yeah. eventually you found your voice, you know? And it's, I'll make a very odd comparison, but I, you know, Barbudo just closed. Mm-hmm. And you know, I did a little. I wrote a little piece on it, and I said that that place to me was was timeless and placeless. Like you could be on the PCH uh, in California in some found space where they were doing pizza and pasta and mm-hmm. kale salad. You could have that place could have been in Bushwick, mm-hmm. you know. And yeah. I feel like it was a statement of Jonathan Waxman having gotten to a point in his life and career where he could just create a place on instinct, mm-hmm. you know, and it would work. And I feel like in your guys' own way with your different, very different sets of, re- am I making sense? Yeah, no, totally. With very different re- sets of references, you had reached a place where you could do something that's, yes, it, it reminds of other places in some mm-hmm. ways, but it's totally unique. And the food is very much in in that lane, or you know, a taste of classic French food, and some of it is, but some of it's also your own, your own, dishes, right? And but it all fits it all hangs together. Yeah, and right. you've kind of reached a place where you can do that. Like honestly, I said to I said to someone when I first came in here, I'm like, yeah, it's 2019 and I'm in Tribeca, but honestly, if I if I woke up here, I might have said like, oh my God, I just woke up in 1998, you know, lower Manhattan. You know, it felt it feels timeless in that way. Mm-hmm. And probably if I didn't hear anybody speaking, I might have wondered if I was in Paris. Hmm. You know? But does that make sense? I don't yeah. know. There's a there's an Elvis well, Costello yeah. album called King of America. Mm-hmm. Do either of you listen to him? It's a very, it's like, yes, you know. But is that one of his later ones? Not anymore. <laughs> one time the answer would have been yes. He's been around a long time. It was in the mid '80s. But it's 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 um, it's like is that from that no. Record? But it's 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 like there's songs, a lot of songs in it that are kind of in the World War II era, mm-hmm. and it's it's like. But the way he, the lyrics, it's like, wait, is this London? Is this New York? Mm-hmm. You know, like, right, is this right. now? Is this then? Yeah. You know, and I feel like this restaurant's kind of like that. Mm-hmm. And yeah. to me, it's, that's what's so sort of intoxicating about it, mm-hmm. yeah. is it's, it's, it's familiar and also totally unfamiliar. I mean, unless you come here all the time, yeah. like some people. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's also very, I mean, it's... it's Evan's song. It, it, it's a collaboration, you know, I mean, we have, you know, you have, you have Jorge Riera and his wine list. Yes, right? which we haven't and, even talked yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. So, Who's another 
friend from yours, you guys, he goes, you guys go way back. I've known him 30 years. Yeah, it's we amazing. Amazing. So, uh, yeah. So can you, go ahead. No, no, nothing. The instinct, I probably think is, is the word. We, I think we trust our instinct. Yeah, you know? but it feel, that's what feels so confident about it, you know? What, um, can you tell me, talk to me about the menu a little bit. It changes a lot. Yeah, um, part every day, yeah. And, but then there's things that haven't changed. Like, I, be, I wasn't here the first couple of months, but um, I believe, I be, if I've been informed correctly, Duck Freet has been perched atop the entrees list mm-hmm. from day one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What was the deal with, that's not a thing, right? That's your guy's thing. Yeah. Right? I mean, I've never seen that anywhere. That was love at first sight for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I ordered that my first time here, and I was like, well, actually, just seeing it on the menu made me really right. giddy. Didn't want a restaurant where you garnished every plate with fries, yeah. which felt like we came from some places like that. Yes. Um, yet we still, it's still a French bistro, mm-hmm. you know, at at heart. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, steak frites being such a you know strong bistro element, you know, we just thought to kind of play with that idea a little bit. Yeah. Just do something meaty, but maybe not. It being a steak, it was a duck steak mm-hmm. and garnished with a pile of fries. Yes. That was going to be our only steak, really—a steak frit or a fried garnished. Plate, oh, really? You know? Yeah. Okay. I think there's only one other one, really. Yeah, there's that. What the and, and then we the do, steak. and we do actually a bistro cut so as well. So that that's it. So we, yeah. we, you know, we stayed we stayed true to that, but that was supposed to be the the steak frit. Is that the one sort of you think? immutable thing that'll be there like for the lifespan of the restaurant in one spot are there other things that you think are sort of you can't you can't let go at this point it's duck free and that's why it's at the top you know it's just two words duck free and it kind of informs you you know what this place is right off the bat yeah right and you don't all the way down okay i get it right you don't you don't go through the sort of uh you know the the exercise of the the you you know very often it's like the fish and then the poultry and then yeah. the and then the meats, right? That's yeah. often the progression on a main yeah. course menu. Yeah. It's both simple and um, satisfying as well. well. I mean, you have it's a primal. Okay. I mean, the duck goes through variation of things from being salted to being poached to being dried and uh, elegant. So there's a simplicity to it and there's an elegance to it, which there's is an kind el- of what French it is. And there's an elegant that doesn't reveal or show off all those things you just described. Yes. Like I don't. I know a lot about food. I would not have known it went through that much of a process. Yeah, it's understated. The yeah. the result is understated. Yeah. yeah. Well, again, that's like great writing, right? Yeah. They they always say your writing shouldn't seem like you stayed up all night torturing yourself. It ought to seem like it just appeared on the page, right? right, right. You may have to stay all night up all night torturing yourself to get yeah. there, yeah. right? So, tell me about the name. I know it's been out there. I've heard. I know it's been in print, but for people who haven't heard it, what, what what's the? You're, you're smiling. No, it's it's. I, I mean, when do when do we actually settle on that? Was name? such a process. Was, uh, yeah, it was we almost. Hard, uh, as far as us getting along, we probably almost broke up because of trying to find a name. What were some of? The, do you remember the? Do you have a list of the discarded ones? I know. I'm like, yeah, those no. the worst names in the world. Uh, were they all? Were they French? Were a lot of them French? French yeah, they were kind of Frenchish. Frenchish. Yeah, yeah. You know. That so he came up. It was actually my wife who, who suggested the name, and uh, we we were in Jamaica. Um, you know, I think I tor- I mean, as much as Lee and I tortured each other yeah. with the names, uh, I pretty much torture her. She's pretty blunt about yes. uh, and um, and honest about her opinions. So yes, I would get shot down fairly uh-huh. frequently. You know, so, 
Uh, actually, me and his wife see eye to eye. Is pretty much. Is that right? Of his, yeah, yeah suggestions. Both Scorpios, that's why. Um, <laughs> and uh, so we're in Jamaica. We spent a week there, and on our last day, we're having a couple of like roadies at the bar, and um, she said, "So, you know, you've been on the, you know, on the beach for a week, uh, thinking about this restaurant. Do, you know, do you have a, do you have a name?" And I said, well, no, uh, not really. I still kind of like, you know, this, this other name that, you know, was, we were kicking around for a while, which was from a suicide song. Okay. Um, so, you know, these were kind of parameters that we were starting to work in there. Something New York, something kind of vintage. Something yes. Had a bit of an edge. Maybe yes. Maybe had a little bit of a, like, I don't know, I want to say like, like old New York, or no, you know, vibe, you know, mud clubby kind of a mm-hmm. thing, weird, mm-hmm. maybe. Um, and so the suicide song, maybe, and she said, no, you know what? I gotta be honest with you. I don't really like that name. And she said, well, what about Frenchette? And I said, yeah, that's, that's perfect. You know, tell me about it. And she said, it's David Johansson, you know, and Sid Sylvain, the, um, Sil Sylvain, sorry. Uh, I don't know if people even know. David Johansson was the New York Dolls. Dolls, He's sadly... Known to probably more people Buster. as Buster Poindexter, He's all those things. which was this later day gag he did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, he and his longtime collaborator they wrote this song, you know, for his first solo record. Yes, called Frenchette. Yeah, and uh, we we pulled it up and listened to the lyrics. Yes, you know. So when I got back with the next day, you know, I yeah. said I got the name. I got the eye rolls because every day I would come in and I'd go like, I got the name. Right. You know, and then these guys, both Lee and Josh, would be yeah. like. Oh, that name sucks so bad. Yeah. And uh, this time I said Frenchette, and they, they was they were quiet, so we knew we knew uh, that was the that was it. I think it was pretty much it, right? Yeah. How far out Don't from opening it. was that? Like the next day we opened. Not that bad, but <laughs> it's pretty it's close. close. You guys oh, were getting yeah, close. Yeah, yeah, it was close. We we had hired. It was a few months before. Yeah, a few months before. What's your philosophy of names? You know, there was a guy. Did you know Steve Share? Who, he died tragically on his, the night of his fiftieth birthday. He was one of the partners in um, Union Pacific. And okay. Rain, Calle Ocho, mm-hmm. um, with Paul Zwieben, you guys, and uh, and and Jeff Kadish. Anyway, but Steve, um, he was the one with the most commercial instincts of the group. And he said to me once, he goes, you know, Andrew, the most important thing with naming a restaurant is that your name not suck. It, you can have, maybe you get lucky and you'll have a great one. The most, you cannot have a name that people laugh at. But what's your guys, <laughs> how much, what? What's the <laughs> he would have laughed at a lot of some of these. A lot of them? Well, you're not going to tell me one of them? Give me one. Oh, come on. Is it that bad? Give me the worst one. What's right? the worst one? Which was, uh, I was convinced was the best one. And it's really, it was absolutely the worst name. Uh, uh, Funambul. Yeah, yeah, which is uh, Funambul exactly. is a, uh, come on. It's what a what tight, is that? Tightrope walker. Okay. You know, I don't know, Michel Petit, the, you know. The Petit World Philippe. Trade. Philippe Petit. Yeah, yeah, Philippe Petit. Yeah. Sorry, yeah the, the, you know, Trade Center. Yes. That whole thing. You know, when there's there's a scene in that in that movie where, you know... This, the real movie, in, the, documentary, the documentary, not the terrible Robert no, no, Zemeckis no. movie in with the, the bad accent. In the documentary yeah. where this, this, this uh, his, one of his girlfriend slash wives slash baby mamas or whatever, yeah. you know, you know, this woman was, you know, was describing meeting him the first time and what he did, what he did, you know, it was a tightrope yeah. walker. And, and she says Funambul with such enthusiasm, it kind of stuck with me for Got it. 10 seconds. Yeah. Um, the, the, and, the, and, I, and the sentiment is correct. 
No? Come on, like, the sentiment, no? The sentiment was all there, of course, but yeah. he didn't quite, you know. Right. That was horrible. We couldn't pronounce it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, you also need something that people can easily punch up on their iPhone, right, without misspelling it. I mean, Frenchette kind of, it's pitched right in the, like, no, everyone can spell that. There's only one way you would spell that. Well, I don't know. It's funny. It's pronounced, uh, we've encountered a few, Frenchetti. 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 <laughs> does anyone get really, does anyone go pretentious? Does anyone come in and say, like, Frenchetti? Yeah, I don't know. Frenchetti. Well, what are you going to do? It's great. Yeah. Yeah. So that conveys what to you guys? Fun? Yeah, French, fun. Not fun. ourselves too, too seriously, right. you know. Um, French, but also you know, not too French. Not too French. Working, you know, French, but not too French, exactly. And, yeah. And, and, and really fun. Yeah, it's, that's, yeah, the sentiment. What's your take on, um, you know, again, I feel like it's never really gone away, but there is this moment happening, certainly in New York, around... Um, you know, French, French, you know, French food's hot right now, you know, in a, in a traditional vein. I mean, Le Cucou was a huge opening. Yeah, huge. Yeah. In a beautiful space yeah. by a prolific restaurateur, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. and, and here you guys are with this. I mean, they, they're very different restaurants. They're very different yeah. restaurants. They are. But, but they do kind of, if, if I was a publicist looking to pitch a trend story, I would be in heaven, right? If I yeah. was going to have the next one. Yeah. Um, uh, do you guys feel like you're part of something? Do you feel like you're benefiting from something? Or do you feel like that's just kind of something that's a coincidence? If you've thought about it at all. I mean, there are, I guess things, there are cycles for things. And French cycled out for a little while there. But um, is that always something that's going to happen? Is going to all of a sudden be unfashionable again? I don't, I don't think so. I think that there was kind of a people coming back to the more traditional cooking methods and, um, yeah. and classics. And, but for us, we kind of put it on a stage of a more contemporary stage a little bit. Mm -hmm. And maybe, hopefully that's got some legs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Seems to. Yeah. Do you... I'm going to knock on wood. Um, uh, have you guys ever been tempted by other styles? Ever? I can't really? say that I have. Yeah, you know, it's kind of. You know, I mean, consider myself a French chef. Right? Yeah, yeah. Consider us French chefs. We've yeah. Grown up in that uh, environment, worked our way through those types of uh, through that yeah. those restaurants, that that hierarchy, that brigade system, all of that. So, yeah, yeah, you know, that's where we're probably most comfortable. Do you feel uh, like tempted by other styles? No, it doesn't mean. You don't appreciate it. You don't try it. You don't, right. Exactly. Sure. Exactly. But do you, um, it's, I feel like with this kind of food, um, I don't know. I feel like a lot of times there's such a, I mean, I don't even mean this in a derogatory way. I think a lot of chefs, uh, definitely there's an ego part of it. You want to show off a little bit, but I feel like, you know, people who are drawn to, Chefs, guys who are like at your, who are drawn to this style of food and happy in this style of food, really. I'm not just saying this to like blow smoke. I really believe this. I feel like you ex you almost experience your own food the way diners do. Like there's 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 sort of. I just interviewed Dave Barron yesterday from Dialogue Restaurant, and they were you know he had been at Next in Chicago, and they had done a you know a French thing, an Escoffier menu. Oh yeah. And we were talking, and his new place is going to be like a bistro in Santa Monica. And I was like, well, that the food is sort of perfect, right? Like it almost, it's like an argument against evolution. It's almost like 
that's the way it was meant to be. It was like, I said it was almost, this stuff's almost handed down like the Ten Commandments. You know, it's like you're grinning big as I say this. There is sort of a perfection around this stuff. Like there was a, uh, after he died, they, re, they did like some compilation episodes of uh, Parts Unknown, right? Yeah. And there was a scene in Lyon actually when he's with Danielle and they're yeah, at Paul yeah. Bocuse. Yeah. It kind of brings the conversation all around. And some food comes out on this giant platter yeah. and Bourdain's like, see, this is perfect. Look, the colors, the flavors, the... And it's food that was created hundreds of years ago. And honestly, I don't think anyone's done anything better than some of that stuff. It's it's so. It just seems there's almost tra- like like it was like there's, there's an inevitability to it. I don't know. There's there's it's traditional, right? It's yeah. tra- it's tradition. Uh, it's funny. I didn't necessarily grow up with it, but yeah, um, I actually did grow up with it, right? When you think about you know all my formative years have been spent in that environment. Yeah sort of cooking those dishes so yeah it's it's like home cooking yes yeah that's what it is for me yeah anything no okay (laughs) okay but does what I'm saying make sense I do it's almost like this is what the ingredients were put here for I guess that's what I'm saying when you eat some of those classic dishes maybe there's a lot of manipulation in those dishes too but you have to you can't you can't cut corners yes you kind of have to be really careful and 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 yeah. Um, That's like anything that maybe has a vintage twist, you know, whether it's design or art or um, furniture. You know, there's something that we find familiarity with and beauty in these classic things that yeah. were created a long time ago. And food definitely fits in that category. Not that there's no love of you know some of the newer renditions of it but um, yeah I think we all circle back in a way to yeah. things that are very comforting and that might be one of it's them. always there yeah yeah. it's like home it is like when you say home cooking to me I'd almost yeah. say it's more it's like it's like home yeah. at some yeah. point like when you cut, you always come back to it it's in some fashion if you're an eater yeah building building a sauce I don't know I uh, it, butter you know I like butter <laughs> you cook with a lot of butter. Listen, uh, I but, hear you. You know, butter yeah. and shallots. You know, yeah. that's uh, pretty foundational. Yeah, right, well, right there. You know, you know, vinegar. Yeah, peas wine, and morels. You know, <laughs> do you and guys? Then it just yeah, it's it's pretty easy to layer right on sure. top of that. Is this home base for good? Do you think you're going to do other things? Like, what's your what's your sort of view of the? I mean, you guys aren't 25, but you're not old guys. Like, this could <laughs> kind of old. Pretty well. Old. Oh, I mean, yeah. this is home base in a way. I mean, this no, it's, is it's this home is our base, yeah. this is our mothership. And yeah. yeah, where we do other things, most likely. Okay. Yeah. Uh, honestly, economically, you have to. The city That's is interesting. Uh, is uh, it's expensive. It's expensive to live here. Yeah. Uh, it's expensive to run a business here. It's expensive to run a restaurant here. I don't so, know how anyone does it. Uh, you know, the bottom the bottom line is not massive. Mm-hmm. You know, it's probably not enough, and it's not enough to sustain uh, three, let alone eight, whatever, how many other partners, you know, or investors that you may well, have. So, you know, yeah, I hear you. you're, you're forced to sort of um, to do other projects. You My know? Two f- but you're forced, but you have to do it with love and Right and be excited about it. You have to wait for the right space, the right idea, the right everything. Yeah, it's not about anything but that. Yes, sure. You know, and and any any other project needs to have the same sort of passion that you have about where where we're standing, where we are right now. Right. Well, you also don't want to do anything that's going to devalue 
what you know, like the no, I hate to I use a word like brand. The, uh, you know, the, yeah, it, leaves, it says the mothership. Yeah, this is a place where we cycle through our cooks. We train yeah. them to, you know, to see things the way maybe the way we see them. And, yes, and train them along and bring them along yeah. station by station by station. Yes, and by the end of their experience here, they can move on to another place, perhaps that we've keep them in the and, fold. And then, yeah, and then move them on. And yeah, on sure. Through. And every, yeah, that would be fantastic. Well, guys, thank you. Yeah. Um, this has been great. I, I have to tell I, we, I didn't really, I don't think I did. Oh, I met you once on the street outside of uh, Austria Marini. I was with Michael White a million years ago. You wouldn't remember. Yeah, yeah. It was a handshake. I don't think you and I ever met till this place. I, it's right. really been great getting to know you just a little Likewise. bit, as much as you're able to chat when I come to say hi in the back. For sure. Um, but congratulations. Thank you. And, nice. and, I mean, yeah, you've been a really great supporter. Yeah. Well, thank from, you. Well, you uh, said this the other day, but I'm like, if anyone, does, I mean, no, no, you're being really, very sweet, no, but I, not, you didn't no, need no, my it's, support. It's really, no, it's really, honestly, early on. I mean, you sent a copy of the book, you, you know. I did um, do that, yeah. You introduced yourself. Yes. You know, you know, we had a human exchange. Yes. You know, early on when we kind of needed little boosts. Really? You know, I think so. And the fact that you came back like the next week and that you oh, know, I was you in love. Some nice things about it are you know, oh my god. Those reinforce, you know, uh, just your confidence. I was head uh, over bit. heels. So, you know, thanks. Yeah. And you well, thank you. All the time. I mean, that's great. And thank you. And him as well. I mean, that's uh, for us. That's a it's a barometer uh, to see people in. And part of the reason why we want to change the menu as much as we do is so that. You guys see something different each time you come in. Yeah. You know? No, it's, uh, yeah, I think you guys hit it, you know, you pitch it just right. I mean, I don't need your, <laughs> I think I told somebody they needed to start charging Evan rent. I mean, Evan Sung, for yeah. people who, nobody would know that. Evan Sung, well, some listeners might, is one of the top photographers in the world in the food and restaurant and chef realm. Yeah. He's probably my best friend and he lives here. He's, he lives in Brooklyn, yeah. but he lives here. It's, <laughs> like, it's, he is here yeah, I mean, multiple times a week. Yeah. It's what it's what we wanted this restaurant to be. Exactly yeah. that. I mean, he's had kidneys for lunch and kidneys for dinner. Yes. He's pretty legendary uh, in the kitchen as far as that goes. That's great. I don't think well, has recreated uh, a double kidney day. Yeah. Well, I'm happy for you guys. Sincerely, it's nice to see good guys thanks. succeed. Thanks so, so much. Congrats and thanks for the time. Appreciate it. No, Thank thanks. you. Thanks for a your pleasure. time. Thank you. Yeah. And that's the show for this week. Jeff Gordner, thank you for joining me. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for missing your train. You made me miss my train. (laughs) (laughs) What can I tell you? It was. uh, I was. I was. I was. You told me this would be ten minutes. I was enraptured. Well, it was all for a good cause. The cause was turning people onto your new book, "Hungry: Eating, Road Tripping, and Risking It All with the Greatest Chef in the World." Just came out yesterday. Uh, to David Shim, thank you for making me your first podcast interview. To Lee Hansen and Riyad Nasser of Frenchette, thank you so much, guys. It's been a pleasure getting to know you over the last year or so, year and a half. And that's our show for this week. Again, thanks to Jeet Paul, as always, for splicing these things together. To Heritage Radio Network for all of your support. And to all of you out there in podcast land, thank you for listening. And we will see you back here next week on Andrew Talks to Chefs. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. 
driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows that you like. Tell your friends. And please, join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.